everyone. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 58 of the Primetime Rundown, powered by StreamYard, right here on the Eastern Observer, I-95 Sports Network, and Zingo Television, Channel 198. We can't thank you all enough for being here with us on our new night here during the summer on Monday evenings, alongside my co-host Rob DeLuca, our special guest Mike Zabo. Nick Diamanis is in the back room. We, we're hoping to get him. He's, happen- he's having just a little bit of technical difficulty right now, but we hope to have him with us here shortly but like i said we can't thank all of you enough for being here with us tonight here on this monday evening june the 21st um and we of course are presented to you by black cats nyc and their new album which is out now titled free cake which is available for download on apple music deezer youtube soundcloud amazon music YouTube Music, Pandora Music, and Spotify. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, to subscribe to us on the Primetime Rundown as we are available for download in the iOS and Google Play stores. Or you can listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or just tune in on YouTube and search I-95 Sports Network, and you can catch all of our programming that way. Rob, it has been a jam-packed week, my friend. It is great to see you, but I can't wait to dig right in. But first, how are you doing? Well, we're, we're hanging in there, you know, just taking it day by day, week by week. And this week's been pretty packed. And, you know, we're going to have a great show tonight, as we always do. It's going to be a fun two or so hours. And it's we got some great company with us. And it's, that always is going to make for a great show. <laughs> as we said, we have Mike Zaba. We have Nick Diamandis with us as I'm bringing in Nick here um, as we uh, have our two special guests here with us. Mike, the last time I believe you were with us was for our, uh, was right around the same time when the Rangers had their front office shakeup. Uh, so it's been a, it's been about a month since we've last seen you. I believe Rob was in Vegas at the time. So uh, Mike, how have you been? How have you been lately? I've been good. You know, doing well. Summer's finally here. So I always love that. That's my season time of year. I love the summer. So um, we're glad that's there. And still, even though with the summer, we always still have a lot of sports going on and, you know, as you mentioned, the, the Rangers turn off the street. I think they quietly get under the radar. They're out of no one. And, you know, there's a lot of fun going on from the Rangers. There's all this NHL playoffs and the NBA. No matter what's going on, sports keep rolling. Nick, I think the last time you were with us was for our Final Four preview show back in March, and we're just so happy to have you back with us. It's a pleasure to be back with you guys. Uh, last time... We were here. Uh, we were, had so many things going on with college basketball. I believe we had opening day of baseball in the same broadcast, too. Um, so two months later, and so much has happened since then. I'm so happy to be here to wrap up since. Well, I, I think the last time you were with us, but we were also still in the thick of the NBA regular season. And uh, since the last time you were with us, a lot has changed. Um, with the NBA, especially in the Eastern Conference, which is where I want to kick off tonight's show, gentlemen. And Rob, who of the four of us is the diehard Brooklyn Nets fan here with us, and I know he's going to want to grind his gears here for a few minutes, but the Nets in year one of the era of Harden, Kyrie, and KD do come up short as they fall to the Bucs um, in one of the best game sevens I think we'll ever see, or in recent memory at least, in which uh, Kevin Durant dropped a record, a game seven record, 48 points in a lo- losing effort in overtime, 115-111. Um Rob, we know the injuries. We knew we know the adversity that Brooklyn was facing, even going into Game Five and Game Six, and still managed to force that Game Seven. And I mean, I mean that Game Seven more than lived up to the hype. But what what is your instant reaction to this series as a Nets fan? There's no other way to take it with what you were given other than failure. This this season is a colossal failure. You, this team was supposed to be the NBA 
NBA champions, let alone go to the NBA finals. And now, and they're out of here in round two. That's not good enough. Obviously, the injuries bring some adversity there. But nonetheless, the, the team had shown you they can win with just two of the big three. Granted, if you really want to take something into consideration with Harden's injuries, it was more like 1.5 of the big three. But nevertheless, you, you look at guys like Joe Harris, who did not shoot well. And that was crucial, especially in Game 7. He he had a horrible series, let alone Game 7. He looked terrible the entire series. He wasn't the same player we saw in the regular season, and that's a problem. And then you go you go down to the lack of depth with the Brooklyn Nets, and it just is it just just didn't add up. And at the end at the end of the day, they got to overtime. Kevin Durant with a beautiful turnaround shot in regulation to force it. His big ass toe was on the line so it wasn't a three the season could the series could have been ended right there but sadly fate had his foot on the line so it was a long it was the longest two you could possibly make and in overtime the chances were there the nets could have pulled away in that overtime several times they they took about 10 or 11 shots they made one they had two points in all of overtime they made their first shot and then they were brick after brick after brick and then and then Milwaukee finds their six points in all of overtime. Very strangely bad shooting overtime it was by both sides. But Milwaukee had six. Brooklyn only had two. And now you've got Milwaukee in the Eastern Conference Final. And it's it's just disappointing. There's work to be done in Brooklyn. Well, I think we all saw that the writing was on the wall for this team to to win a championship in such a very small window um, for Brooklyn, considering that they had traded Karis LeVert, they had traded Jared Allen in the trade to bring uh, James Harden to Brooklyn. But I think you, you hit on a few key points there, Rob, by talking about how just ice cold Joe Harris was in this series, that the man literally could not buy a three-pointer. Um, James Harden playing with what, what turned out to be a game, a grade two, excuse me, hamstring strain uh no Kyrie so I mean I mean aside from the unbelievable performances that Kevin Durant put up in game five and game seven a, a lot of credit also Rob also has to go a little bit to uh Giannis Antetokounmpo on his 40 point performance in game seven as well yeah Giannis was fantastic I mean look that's we weren't going to expect anything less. At least I wasn't as a fan. I, I knew he was going to come to play. Well, who, who shockingly had a weird off night there was Chris Middleton. Middleton was certainly not the factor that he that he's normally used to being. So it was it really was just it was Giannis Antetokounmpo out there. It was it was his show to take, and the Brook the Brooklyn's chant. The Brooklyn, the Brook, Brooklyn fans' chant of counting Giannis at the uh, free throw line was only only worked twice. So as he airballed two free throws, I don't know how you airball two free throws in one game, but it doesn't matter when it doesn't matter when you drop forty other points. So overall, Giannis came to play. Kevin Durant came to play. It was a battle. The battle. If you want to go on points alone, the battle was ultimately won by Durant. But the war which being the final score of the game, was won by Giannis. Nick, we spoke a little bit about all the injuries and that Harden's playing on one good leg, Kyrie's out. Um, the But we knew, and, and, and I'm going to reiterate this again, about the, the depth issues for the Brooklyn Nets. I mean, aside from being that super team with three of the top five players in all of the NBA, we know this team, again, lacked depth. Uh, should we be surprised of, of, of this exit for the Nets in the conference semis? Um, a little bit surprised. Obviously, this team on paper should have made their way. In fact, they should have danced their way to the final uh, this year. Um, 
But when you look at the other teams that are really doing well, when it's teams like the Suns and the Hawks, those teams have incredible depth. You look at their their B squads, and you see guys that continue to put on more than satisfying performances for their coaching staffs. So when you have a couple of guys like your Durants and Hardens and, and Irvings, when they're not all 100% healthy, you're asking a lot from your guys who aren't, haven't, they really haven't been in a situation to take over a game and uh, to do it in the uh, most important time of the season. Obviously, it took an under-experienced um, coaching staff all the way to overtime in game seven. And here they are sitting uh, at home with two more rounds of the basketball to be played. So you can go and look at this entire series and look at different things that the Nets could have really, really um, taken advantage of throughout the entire seven game series. But kudos to the Bucks. They had to do the hard thing and going to the road, go on the game seven in Brooklyn, the hostile environment and pull off an incredible win and head to, one step closer to the NBA Finals. One of the best game seven, sure for Nick. Uh, Nick for sure that uh, we've seen in recent memory, at least in in uh, maybe not just the NBA Finals, but the NBA playoffs as a whole. Um, Mike, I, again, this goes back to what we what I what I've been saying to Rob and Nick about it. It's it's difficult, even though I did ask Nick this question. It's difficult to argue that basically down two pivotal players or you want to call it one and a half um, in your lineup to call the season at this point, a disappointment for a team that whose window is so small that they should be winning a championship this year. I mean, I mean, again, the pressure just adds up more and more in year two and year three, when these guys have opt outs of their contracts. So uh, do you feel with the way this team was, was structured that they would have even won an NBA championship if they survived Milwaukee at that point? Uh, not with their injuries. I think even if they got through, I, I still think they would have. I think even the Hawks might have beat them or, or the 76ers. I, I think they might have had enough to get past Milwaukee. They were pretty much in every single game despite all of their injuries, even when Kyrie went down. So it wasn't an issue that they were getting blown out. And obviously we saw, as you said, one of the greatest game sevens ever, despite Brooklyn not being healthy, but I don't think they would have gone much farther. And honestly, probably in the NBA Finals, you take the, the Suns or the Clippers, probably more likely the Suns, they would they would have gotten obliterated. But it's just, the there's so many things to touch on with how the Nets uh, season is a failure, that series was a failure. Joe Harris, we can talk on for endlessly amount of time. The fact that he was such a dependable three-point shooter in the regular season. I mean, shooting 48% from the regular season, not an easy thing to do in the course of an NBA season. And when, you know, you have a couple of guys down, he's one of the guys that you would look to to really provide some steady scoring, and he just wasn't there. And Nick touched on it, an under, um, you know, an under-experienced coaching staff. You know, Kyrie did say a couple months ago that we don't need coaching. Well, you kind of did need coaching in the playoffs in that, in that sort of situation. Just because you're a great player doesn't mean that you don't need good coaching, and that really showed up, which is strange. They do have, you know, Mike D'Antoni on the staff and stuff like that. So there's there's one or two guys here or there that do have some experience, but Nash as a coach made some questionable decisions. I know game after game, especially late on, people called for Joe Harris to be pulled from the lineup. The only reason he was kept in there was because of his defense, that he was pushing, able to push guys out to the perimeter, especially Drew Holiday, and make him more inefficient uh, from distance. But at some point, Nash really should have taken the gamble and thrown Landry Shamit in there. 
and see what if he what he could do and live with the results because Joe Harris just for whatever reason didn't have it. It's almost inexplicable. I mean, he he really, you know, couldn't shoot at all. I mean, to quote Stephen A. from First Take this morning, he couldn't shoot. Uh, he couldn't hit the river, uh, you know, outside their Pier 17 deck <laughs> in the ESPN studios. He was so bad, and, and you know, there's just that front. Uh, and that that's what really killed them. The, you know, the couple threes here that he really missed. You look, you know, you do the math, you know, he, he just wasn't there. It, whether it was him or everybody else, there was nobody who stepped up uh, to help out Durant. And he played, he only sat for eight minutes and, you know, combined in the last three games of the series. And you're still not able to close it out. Nobody was able to help him out. You're not going to expect it from James Harden because of his injuries. So, you know, it was really disappointing, you know, even though, yes, they're down to injuries and whatnot, they still had some complimentary role players that if there was good coaching, they should have at least gotten past this series. I mean, the expectations were that they ha had to at least make the NBA final. So falling here is a big disappointment. One thing I do want to touch up upon. Go ahead, Nick. mentioned coaching. You know, it doesn't matter who the coaching staff is. We looked at another series in Doc Rivers and seeing how – you know, things didn't go their team's way when it came down to the stretch. At the end of the day, it all comes down to execution. You can draw X and O's up on the, on the board all day long, but at the same time, you have to have the guys that have the intuition and the will to get that job done. And right now, we're seeing teams like the Sixers and the Nets still trying to figure out ways to get their stars acclimated and to get one step closer to getting an NBA Finals ring. Um, but right now... The tail, the tail, right now in the NBA playoffs, depth wins right now. And, and Nick, I want to get back to your point on the Sixers in a second, but Rob, uh, I want to come back to you. Uh, do you agree with Mike's point? And as a Nets fan, what do you feel year two for this super team holds for Brooklyn? It has to be a championship. There's no other There's no other way around it. This. That's what this team was built for. This team was built to win a championship, win two championships even, because this is a small window. It might only even be two years as opposed to three because after th this coming year, it's there's options in those contracts. So there's no guarantee that all three will be back for year three. So this is it right here. Year two is it. So this this is make or break time for Brooklyn. And to Mike's point about the coaching, yes, I agree completely. You know, you need the good coaching. And Steve, Steve Nash's lack of time with a timeout available to not call it on the – on the following possession to try to tie this game up was the wrong decision. You, this isn't college basketball. You don't ride, you don't ride the run in the final seconds just because it's a, uh, just because there's a chance that you can hit a big three at home, but we are not, we're not in the March madness tournament. We're in the NBA playoffs in game seven. This, this isn't like, oh, you just get another shot at it next year, you know, or some of them don't you graduate. No, this this is the NBA. You play to win, you play to win every possession. You talk that over in the you talk that over in the locker, not in the locker room, on the sidelines there. You talk it over, you call timeout. And he didn't. And to me, that's what ultimately did it because because honestly, I mean, look, Kevin Durant obviously was the right person to have the ball the ball in his hands, but it was a poor shot selection. So yes, the, that's it was, what it was. It was forced. It was a forced shot because he was running out of time. Because it, there's no way that the way, the Nets were going to be able to inbound that ball and find a way to get it to KD. There was plenty of time to do it. 
So the fact that I didn't call timeout, that leaves a bad taste in my mouth with Steve Nash. But obvi- but you know what? With the big three intact here, that's who they want coaching them. That's who's got to be here next year. I mean, for God's sake, my NBA 2K game automatically takes a timeout when you're in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I want to I want to piggyback off what Rob was saying then, and this is my last point here um, with respect to the, uh, the the Brooklyn Nets series. Um, we see more and more, especially with teams that have superstars like you know with LeBron where he's been, and and now obviously with a team filled of superstars like Harden, Kyrie, and Durant that really don't need much coaching. We're learning in the playoffs that coaching is absolutely necessary, but we do see in a lot of situations where teams that are built like like the way Brooklyn is, um, they just tend to lean more on a figurehead, um, just just a name to throw in there. And, and, and a first-year coach like Steve Nash is, did you feel he was the right guy at the wheel to lead a team built like this? Or is, or is Nash even, going, even looking towards year two not the right fit? I mean, at first impression when he was first announced, I, I thought it wouldn't have been too bad because, I mean, yeah, he was a former player, but, you know, you have three really experienced players there that they – that they sort of know what they're doing and Nash can fill in the gaps. But like you said, clear once you got to the playoffs that that was the wrong thinking that, um, you know, he, he wasn't the guy. But you do have a problem in that what Rob was saying before, if KD, Harden, and Kyrie want him there, that's who you got to keep there because you can't – we know, all know how the NBA now uh, is nowadays and with player power and whatnot – so you, you really can't get rid of him because if you get rid of him, you risk a- angering those big three guys. And if you do that, then this whole gamble that they made with the Harden trade to try and expediate this championship window is, is going to be a huge colossal failure. And with the assets that they traded, Brooklyn's going to end with KD turning 33 now. Kyrie's not getting any younger. You're going to wind up in a rebuild situation all over again before you know it. Nick, I want to move back over to your um, – come back to your Sixers point because that's where I want to transition this conversation to, to the Sixers-Hawks series, which saw another upset uh, in which the Hawks knocked off the Philadelphia 76ers with a 103-98 to win in Game 7 um, at the Wells Fargo Center. Uh, I'm just going to leave with this question, Nick, and take it as you will. Is it no longer time to trust the process? Um, I think the main question has to be, is Ben Simmons you know, lead point guard? Uh, and obviously that's been the buzz on social media and, and sports television throughout the day. Um, but at this point, you do have one of the best coaching staffs in the league, in Doc Rivers and his uh, assistants. You have arguably the best center in the league in Joel Embiid, and you have other guys that are all-stars and you know very good role players in uh, Tobias Harris. Um, the list goes on and on, but Ben Simmons is the main question mark out of all the conversations that people are going to have about the Sixers team. Um, the fact that he passed up that wide open dunk just answers all the questions uh, that skeptics have. It's like this guy just doesn't seem to have the mental game to carry a team in situations like this. Uh, so that's one thing that they may have to address in the offseason, whether, you know, he's a viable option to bring back for this squad. Um and another thing is that they have to really figure out, you know, their bench at the same time. They didn't really get the output that they were expecting throughout this series. And Atlanta Hawks B team completely outplayed them the last three games of the season, uh, the series. 
Um, so it just goes to show, I think Atlanta did what they needed to do to prove that they were the better team in game seven. But, you know, you have home court game five and seven. You have to close out in your home arena. And the fact that they didn't get that done in either of those two games, that's what people are going to look at next year and years beyond that. Well, you you look at the game five lead that they blew of 26 points and you look at the game four lead that they blew of 18 points and had the chance to shut out that series very early. Uh, but I want to go to an, an, a stat that I read that was very, very interesting today about Doc Rivers, that he actually has 29 losses in his career with a chance to clinch a playoff series. That's the most, actually, in NBA history. And his 341 winning percentage of coaches who have coached more than 20 or more playoff games is the worst among any coach in NBA history. So, yes, I mean, Doc Rivers is, is a name that won in Boston, but uh, it, it seems like whenever when when a series is on the line, um, it, it just doesn't appear that, that Nick, that Doc's teams, um, it just appears that they flop. It's a very valid point. He's lost in three one advantages in playoffs three times as a coach. He did it with Orlando in 2001, and he did it in a couple times in L.A. with the Clippers. Um, granted, there were two very different Clippers teams. You know, first off, it was Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, and company, and then more recently with Paul George and and um, and um, like it on the last name, uh, Kawhi Leonard. I'm sorry, in uh, <laughs> company. Uh, the second time around, but it goes to show you that, you know, you may have one of the better coaches in paper, but you know, execution is what matters in playoff time. And you could have something that works over 82 regular season games, but that's what people are studying in film for the playoffs. You're going to have to have some adaptability right now. Doc Rivers last 10 years or so, ever since winning with Boston, he hasn't really shown that he can do it a second time. Mike, Nick mentioned about the failure of Ben Simmons to perform when it really matters. Um, through the entire series, he attempted four fourth quarter shots, four. And uh, that's um, not including the pass-up dunk that he had with the chance to tie the game. And that turned out to be the decisive missed bucket because Philly went to the line, only hit one of two, and they never tied the game from there. And the Hawks went on to the victory. Um, what is What does Philly do at this point? Um, to you know, to turn the ship, and what you know, what did they do more specifically with Ben Simmons? They need a shakeup. They need to trade Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons is not going to be fixed in, in Philadelphia. I, I just don't know how you survive as a guy who doesn't shoot that often on, on the team that they are on. You already have Embiid in there, and then you have Ben Simmons, two guys who are not going to shoot often. Embiid takes the occasional three, but. Typically, he's not going to be a guy that gets the boatload of his points from shooting. He's going to be a guy who, you know, smash mouths in the paint. And it's going to be the same thing with Ben Simmons. He, it, it, and it's just nuts. Their team is just, it would be better, much better off with, with him gone. And it, it really addresses that, okay, he's maybe a good point guard, but I don't think he's an elite level point guard that's going to take this team back to the promised land. And, you know, it was clear. It was clearly telling when you saw Doc Rivers's response in the post-game press conference, where his mind is at, and maybe where the Philadelphia organization's mind is at when he's asked the question, "Can Ben Simmons be a championship-level point guard?" And he even said, "I don't know how to answer that." When I hear that, I feel Ben Simmons has played his last game as a Philadelphia 76er, and I think it should be. He was honest in last night's game seven, at least. At least. 
I, I didn't watch the first three quarters, evidently, but I turned on the television for the fourth quarter, and I saw that he was scared to shoot. He was scared to do anything. He was scared to attack and, and to get uh, fouled and whatnot. And I have, a, a, you know, I played soccer growing up, but I think it's in any sport, as an athlete or whether you played it as a kid, you played it professionally or whatever. I, I think, like, you have a, a bit of a core fiber that, when you're your teammates, you feel you sh- you want to go to war with them, that you have a connection with them like that, that you can trust them, that you're with them all the way, win or lose. And I don't think it's that way. I wouldn't feel that way with Ben Simmons after what I just saw in game seven, or I'm in the middle of that game. You know, I would say something to him. Why did you pass up that dunk? But what was his name? Thibel, who he passed yep. it to? I don't know why he, he uh, high-fived him after the, the foul call. I would be yelling at him. I'm like, what are you doing? You're wide open for a dunk. You pass it to me, and I got two big guys on me, uh, you know, going to take me out right here. Um, he, he was just playing scared. And to me, watching that, I, I've, you know, lived and breathed sports all my life. The biggest thing that I hate is somebody playing scared. I'd rather take an inferior player on my team who's not afraid to play at all than someone who's scared. And Ben Simmons played scared, scared last night. And that should be telling for Philadelphia and what – you know, make their decision of what to do. The problem is trade value. Now, after watching that, and, and, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one after what I just said, thinking the same way as I am. So knowing that, what is really his trade value is the problem for the Philadelphia Sunday Sixers. I honestly think that after watching yesterday's game, the glaring question is who's the leader of the Sixers organization? Is it going to be indeed? Is it going to be Tobias Harris? We don't know if Ben Simmons has played his last game. But watching last night's game, they're like watching chickens without heads out there sometimes. And you can't have that in game seven. And you're trying to defend home court and move on to the next round. And you have your star players indecisive of what they want to do on offense. Clearly faltered down the stretch. And here you are seeing a team on paper not as strong as the Sixers moving on and potentially making their run to the NBA Finals. It's just how it goes. You have to really nail on execution and know your role and try to do what you can to make sure that your team is successful at the end of the day. We just didn't see that from the Sixers last night. Rob, Mike, and Nick both mentioned about the trade value, and it surely can't be any lower at this point for Ben Simmons. So uh, if they can trade Ben Simmons, who's going to take him? What are they going to send back? And is is there anything at this point that can complement a piece like Embiid? Look, it's tough out there right now. The trade trade market is what it is right now, and Ben and Ben Simmons is hopefully on his way out. At least that's how I would look at it if I was a Philly fan. Me personally, his poor performance definitely left me with a smile on my face because at least if my Brooklyn Nets aren't there, at least Philly came down with us in the same round, same length of the series. So, and I, I have a personal vendetta against their owners but that's a story for that's a that's a that's a rant for another time (laughs) but but nonetheless i think that ben simmons is in a bad spot right now in philadelphia i think this will be his last game played if philly wants to do something about this they will they will definitely find a way to move him. the value is low but they if philly is smart they can certainly find a way to find some value for him somewhere but it'll be It'll be tough. I mean, I don't, I don't see more than like a, a first rounder, maybe, or a, ver- a very 
a, a depth player, really. You're not gonna get a you're not gonna get a starter for Ben Simmons right now. It's just not gonna happen. And they so have to give draft compensation in exchange in the trade for Simmons. It, it wouldn't be Simmons straight up. They probably have to throw in a pick there to to spice up the deal, which sure. it, it just shows how far Simmons has fallen. Yeah, and if there's one thing that we've known about Ben Simmons, his mo as long as we've known him and the media has, you know, highlighted him since his high school and college days is that he's always had character issues. You know, his history at LSU, not going to classes, just knowing that he was only going to be there for a semester or for as long as the basketball season at the school happened, that he was hardly going to go to class and that basketball was basically all he was going to focus on. He's always had that misnomer of not really being the guy that can be a leader and, just being out there for self-interest and trying to you know beef up his individual statistics um last night and in a couple of years coming into tonight and the series that just ended yesterday we've seen ben simmons not progress to the level of stardom that he could uh potentially be and right now he's at the lowest point of his career and the 76ers don't know if he's part of the future right now so it's just a, a big downfall for a guy who obviously number one overall pick guy that had all the potential coming in uh, to his NBA career right now has at a crossroads, not knowing what his future is going to be like this fall. Just about seven 30 here on the Eastern observer, Rob DeLuca, Nick Diamandis, Mike Zabo. I'm Ian Schreier. Gents, I want to get your predictions for the Eastern Conference Final between the Bucks and the Hawks, but I don't want to leave out just a slight discussion here about the Atlanta Hawks and the fact that they're in the Eastern Conference Final. Um, I'm not sure many teams, many te- many of us, or many that that are, that follow the NBA um, even thought that they would survive the Knicks, and and yet they've now defeated the Knicks and they've defeated uh, the 76ers um, and are on their way now to the Eastern Conference Final. Um, this is just, Mike, I'm going to start with you. I mean, this is just a, a a true tale of the underdog story. This is a team that's been a lottery team the last three years. They've had four top 10 picks in that time, including uh, the, the Trey Young for Luka Doncic trade, um, which really was they each wanted to draft. Dallas wanted to draft Doncic and Atlanta wanted to draft Trey and they just swapped rights. But what has made them um, such a contender all of a sudden? It's coaching. It's, it's Nate McMillan. I mean, this was a team that was kind of like, you know, eh, in the regular season before McMillan came in, and he comes in in the middle of the season, I believe late January, early February, and he comes in and he just transforms the the entire team, and especially defensively. It, it, they, you know, we can talk about all about Trey Young's offense and what Matthew Herder does, Bogdan Bogdanovich, who was shooting the lights out uh, uh, of the basketball uh, to end the uh, regular season and all that, but he's really brought a really good defensive mindset um, to this team that carried through the rest of the regular season and into these playoffs, and it's what has them on on the brink four wins away from an NBA Finals appearance in God knows how long. And, and, you know, it's really impressive to see. And and, But I think if you're Atlanta, you got to put an extension in the hands of of Coach McMillan. you got to lock him up right now. What he's been doing in, in just you know half a year, not not even a full year, what he's been able to do, he he's definitely got to be the head coach of that team um, long term as they finally realize the potential um, of this young core. Although, don't tell Trey Young he's an underdog. Uh, 
Nick, the team that has come together, um, as Mike said, with Trey Young and Bogdan Bogdanovich and Clint Capella and Lou Williams. I mean, uh, Mike said it's all about coaching. Is it all Nate McMillan right now? Um, yeah, he's got a big part of the success. Absolutely. Uh, when he came in, the Hawks were 14 and 20 in March. Uh, and Lloyd Pierce was a popular guy in the front office. This is a guy that players wanted to get behind and, you know, potentially play for an extended period of time. But um, I believe that the Hawks organization knew that McMillan had an idea of how this roster could be activated in a way that no one really saw other than the inside uh, personnel. Um, right now, the Hawks just have everything clicking. They have matchup issues everywhere, uh, whether it's Clint Capella in the middle, Trey Young, who's an elite pick-and-roll offensive guard. Uh, and that duo right there is going to give Milwaukee some nightmares. Uh, I'm interested to see who uh, Antetokounmpo matches up with, whether it, it is Clint uh, Capella or John Collins, one of those guys. Um, the matchup of Drew Holiday and Trey Young should be very exciting to watch. But again, it's going to have to be a series that's won by the role players and the B squads. Uh, right now, Atlanta's B squads, whether it's Lou Williams, Danilo Gallinari, all those guys, they've been factors all throughout the NBA playoffs so far. Uh, the Bucks, if Giannis keeps going the way he's been going, they should be as competitive as they were with the Nets. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. And I think home court's going to have a lot to do with how all these results come into play. So right now I do give the advantage to the Hawks uh, just based on what we've seen over the last two series. But again, the Bucks seem like they're playing really good basketball the last three games. If they can take that momentum into the Eastern Conference Finals, they can potentially walk away as the Eastern Conference champs too. So Nick, I'll keep it here with you now. It, what is your East final prediction? Is it Bucks or Hawks? And if it is the Hawks, well, based on what you're saying, you're, you're projecting it to be the Hawks. Where would they stand in the NBA Finals against the Suns or the Clippers? I think the Hawks win in seven. I think that they've battled it out all two series so far. The Knicks gave them, you know, a little bit of a of a competition, but it got them to get themselves ready for the 76ers, you know, two relatively similar teams in style and, and, uh, and offense. And once they were able to take down the Knicks in the first round, they felt like they had a good chance against the 76ers. They proved that right in games five and seven. And right now I do think the Sixers uh, were, you know, a little bit inferior to the Bucks in matchup situation right now. So, I think the Hawks are sitting pretty. I think they have to like their chances moving on. Um, but at the same time, you have to do well on your home court. You know, it's going to be a series where you can't lose a potential game six at home. So getting an easy win uh, in the first two games on the road, it's going to be it's going to be key for Atlanta for sure. Rob, you agree? Yeah, Nick. Look, Nick's got a lot of good points there. It's going to be this. This is going to be a lot closer of a series than people think. I really do think Atlanta Atlanta's proving it. Like a lot of people wrote off Atlanta because of how bad they were last year and let's 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 not be hasty. They were terrible. They were every sense of the word bad at the sport of basketball, but they they've turned things around this year and they they belong here right now. It's they proved they can fight with the big dogs. They took down Philly. That says it all. They they went into Philly and took care of business. 
That's that's why I like their chances here. Twice. Twice, yeah. <laughs> Twice. That's why I yeah. like their chance. That's why I like their chances in this series against the Bucks. It's gonna be tight. I think Nick has a point that Atlanta could really force seven. The problem is if Atlanta wants to move on, they got to do it at home. I, I, I don't think they'll find the same luck in Milwaukee as they did in Philly. It's it's just another animal, I, I guess you could go with here. Is yeah. I, I honestly think we, yeah, saw, we saw it with Brooklyn. They had the opportunity to close out in game six, couldn't do it because you know, the building in Milwaukee, the energy was too much for them. And it, it, it people say fans really don't make that much of a difference. BS. Yes, they do. No. It really does make a difference out there. Absolutely. So I, I got Bucks and seven. Bucks obviously, and seven. one thing I do want to add a lot. Obviously, a lot of attention is going to be on Trey Young and Clint Capella and that yeah. little duo that they have. Two guys that are really going to have to be key for Atlanta, and Milwaukee's going to have to do a great job in defending is Kevin Herter and both Bogdanovich. Uh, both those guys are uh, snipers from behind the arc. They have been all year, and they're playing their best ball right now. So. Again, a lot of matchup problems for Milwaukee. Who's going to take those two guys when they're on the court together? Obviously, Chris Milton's going to be on one of those guys, but who's going to step up on Milwaukee's side that's going to be, you know, you know, key defensively? They don't have Dante DiVincenzo. He was a guy that they relied on on both sides of the ball. They have a lot of questions to ask, and right now getting through a Brooklyn Nets team that tired them out last series, it could potentially be a problem within the first four games of the series. We saw Herder drop 27 in Game 7, but right now the stock with the Bucks and the Hawks is that Giannis is coming off his 40-point Game 7 performance um, and Trey Young just having a, a postseason to remember, Mike. So who prevails in the series in your opinion? In my opinion, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride with the underdogs and go with the Hawks. I think the Bogdan Bogdanovich injury, I think he might be a doubt for the first couple games, but I think regardless, I think they should be fine. Um, it's going to be a really hotly contested series. You know, we always talk about offense in the NBA, but we've seen, I think we'll see in this series, and we've seen with a lot of series across the league, but especially in the Eastern Conference, them being really big defensive battles. And this one is going to be another one, and I'm calling Hawks in six. Wow. Very interesting. So two for the Hawks and one for the Bucks. Um, gents, let's get to our final NBA point here, and we're going to head back to the Atlantic Division, where there's been an, there was a trade um, within the Atlantic Division, where Kemba Walker, star point guard Kemba Walker for the Boston Celtics, um, only two weeks after Brad Stevens was promoted to Danny Ainge's position as president of basketball operations, traded him to Oklahoma City um, for Al Horford, who will be returning to Boston, Moses Brown, and a 2023 second. Also for Boston, the 2021, their 2021 first, their number 16 overall pick also will go over to Oklahoma City in this trade. So, Rob, a significant first move for Brad Stevens heading up uh, this Boston Celtics organization. What does this trade mean for both sides? What this does is, honestly, I think it just helps Boston relieve some cap here. They were they, they did this. On, now, look, that also has to mean they have to restructure Al Horford's contract. But I believe they will. So I think what is going on here is I think this was a move coming anyway. I think even if these, this front office shakeup didn't happen, I think Danny Age was going to do this anyway. So I think this is just Brad Stevens continuing the process that was going to occur anyway. He just did it a little bit faster. So what it does for OKC, it gets them their point guard. You know, OKC was in, was in need. And for Boston, it's some cap relief. Again, pen, once 
once the restructure happens, it will be cap relief. And honestly, it it open it opens up a lot it opens up a lot of money for the Boston Celtics to make to make another move this offseason and a big one. So I don't know what that move's gonna be, but Boston's looking to get back into that top four of the Eastern Conference, and they're not waiting around because mainly they don't have to. They are too good of a team to be treading seventh and eighth again. So they they will they will make that move, and they will be right back in the top four. Yeah, they're a team right now that's looking to build their young talent around Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, and uh, looking to re-sign also Evan Fournier. Um, the move in actuality, Rob, creates twenty million in cap space, but um, it's really thirty million um, when you look at the amount that Horford is guaranteed. So it's it's going to create thirty million in cap space uh, for the Boston Celtics, who you're right, in my opinion, should be a lot better than seventh or eighth next season. Uh, Mike Kemba is is thirty years old. We know he's not a spring chicken anymore, but we know he still has some years left. But the problem is he's also injury prone. Um, is this the right move for both sides? Is it a good? I mean, is it a good move to be pairing Kemba with uh, with SGA and OKC, and at the same time, is it a good move for Boston? I think it's a good move for Boston. I think they do need it a shakeup. You needed something to happen when you have this kind of a team finishing seventh in, in the East, in the Eastern Conference. So I think they needed some sort of shakeup. They, you know, this deal basically swapped bad contracts, but you know, once the restructure happens, going to you know create a lot of space uh, for Boston. So. I think it's I think it's a good match for OKC, who's just continuing to build. And you know, Kemba may not be the greatest point guard on the planet, it may not be a spring chicken, but he's a good, dependable score uh, for that uh, Oklahoma City Thunder team. So I think it's a good move for them. I am a little bit shocked that Boston had to give up the 16 pick um, in this trade. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So that that part of the trade was a little bit surprising because. You know, Horf, uh, Horford being dealt, that was a bad, uh, you know, a, a bit of a bad contract in and of itself. So it was a little bit strange that Boston would have to give up, you know, that kind of draft capital for, you know, OKC to stomach uh, Kemba's big deal. But I think it had to happen one way or another. And I think it's good for Boston, opens up a potentially big move, as you said. And I think it would be beneficial for Kemba himself. Nick, why don't you wrap up this topic for us? Yeah, so I think this trade is equally beneficial for both of these teams. Obviously, I think this trade for Boston, it gives the sense of like a organizational shift. They want to make sure that guys like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are the guys of the future for the program and for the organization. So this move basically makes it clear that you are the two leaders of this organization. You guys are the future of this organization. We're going to hand this team off to you and Leave the ball running with uh, next year's team. So I love that they're trying to focus on their younger guys, guys that are uh, potential top 10 players in the league when 100% healthy. And they do this in bringing a guy like Al Horford, who's been there, done that in this league. He provides additional leadership and experience to a team that definitely needed it this year and is going to look forward to that next year. And for Kemba Walker, I think this is a great way for him to basically, you know, you know, revitalize his career in a way. He's had two years where he's been, I wouldn't say lackluster, but he's been a little bit underperforming uh, since he came to Boston. But I view this in a very similar light to how Chris Paul wound up at OKC, too. He found it as a way to make sure that, OK, I still have a career in the NBA. How can I maximize that potential for me? And you know, the story goes, he goes to Phoenix and he finds a perfect fit place for a former coach in Monty Williams. And the stars have aligned perfectly for 
Chris Paul. I think this could be the same exact situation for Kemba Walker as well. Just trying to figure out how he can make sure that his career doesn't spiral down uh, downhill and make sure that he can get back to the way that he was playing in Charlotte. Great points on all accounts, guys. Let's shift over to the ice where the Stanley Cup semifinals are well underway and both series are now heading into game fives uh, with each series tied at two games apiece and uh, not without their uh, flair for the dramatics in both series, which with what we saw on Saturday at Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum and what we saw last night um, at the Bell Center in Montreal. But let's begin uh, with the Islanders and the Tampa Bay Lightning, whose game five will get underway from Amelie Arena in Tampa just after eight o'clock. So we will have updates here uh, live here on the Primetime Rundown as they come through. But let's uh, go back to two days ago and look at probably one of the greatest saves we will ever see in Stanley Cup playoff history. I mean, guys, just what a play there by the Islanders defenseman Ryan Pulak. And I see Mike's uh, exhale here as if he was watching the play again for the first time. But I got to give our our producer and our fellow co-host Joey Jarzinka a little love here because um, it wasn't just all of us that were watching the game. Myself and Joey were live at the Coliseum on Saturday night for for Game Four, and he wanted to. He actually recorded uh, the final five to ten seconds of the game. So I want to show. Um, the angle that we saw it from at the Coliseum. So please, fans, everyone that's viewing or listening, please uh, just give us a second. So, gentlemen, as you could see, the barn was rocking just a little bit after the Islanders uh, took a three nothing, had a three nothing lead heading into the third period, and then Brayden Point comes up with a goal. Uh, only a couple minutes later, Tyler Johnson cuts the deficit to three to two. And if not for a sprawling, incredible play by Ryan Pulak, that game is in overtime. Rob, please speak on the Pulak play from your experience, and ultimately. The Islanders are right back, right back here again. I mean, they were down; they've been down two to one in their first two series. They tied the series, and they've gone on to win the game five on the road um, in each of their last two series against Pittsburgh and Boston. So, first, speak on the Pulak play, and will the Islanders do it again? I got chills from watching from the angle you and Joey had. I got <laughs> I got chills when he blocked it again. That was wild. 
I kept you guys were that close to the play. It was at your end. That's unbelievable. I don't know what Semyon Varlamov was doing personally. That was some that was poor positioning on his part. Ryan Pulak bailing him out. Because let me tell you something. That that was clearly a goal. McDonough sent it center of the net. So that was clearly a goal if Pulak's not there. So it's that was wild. But look. That's what this Islanders team is all about at this point. They're not gonna they're not gonna wow you with like 50, 60 shots on goal a game. They're not that high powered on offense. This is the way Lou Lamorello hockey teams have been operating forever. This is what he did in New Jersey. This is what he's doing now. I his Toronto stint was so brief. It's it's hard to rem- it's hard to recall. <laughs> but. I, I assume it was something similar because with Lou Lamorello, it's his way or the highway, AKA you're out of here. So nonetheless, this is the way it goes when you're Lou Lamorello and it works. He is a winning GM. He only knows how to win. He does not do rebuilds. That's what the Islanders are doing. And honestly, they have just a good, they have a chance to once again, take their third game five on the road. And there's no reason to think that they can't do it at this point. Semyon Varlamov is on a roll right now. He's doing great. Again, albeit aside from that poor positioning on the final play there. But nonetheless, he's been spectacular because the Islanders have been getting outshot game after game. And he's just standing tall. And here's the thing. Even if he wasn't, Ilya Sorokin has come into relief, had to come in relief for that one game. He got hurt on, a te- on some terrible officiating. And... While he had to be in there cold, he was fine. He Ilya Sorokin is just as good. So this is an Islanders team set up to do something special that none of us have seen in our lifetimes. Because right now, this this could be the series. Because it is going to be very difficult, regardless of tonight's result, for Tampa Bay to come to the Coliseum in a Game 6 atmosphere and win. It is, it is very... Very tough. You, The crowd in game four was so much louder than the crowd during game three at the Coliseum. I don't know what that was about, but it is true. And I'm sure, Ian, you can attest to that being wow. there. So, nonetheless, we're going to – in 10 minutes, this game's going to – coverage will begin. Game will get started in about 15 to 20. We're in for a great game five. You folks are not going to want to miss it. Definitely keep us on in the background, but I, no one's gonna, as I tweeted out, no one's going to blame you if you're watching game five. <laughs> believe me, we're going to have our eyes on it here as well. So we're not going to miss anything, but honestly, this is going to be fun. I can't, I can't pick a winner. I really can't. I, this, cause here's how it's going to go. It's going to be low scoring, very low scoring because that's the way, that's the way the series is trending right now. Two great goaltenders. And honestly, it, I, I'd say the final score is going to be, uh, if done to my head, two one lightning. Wow, Mike. I mean, I, I saw your exhale after you saw both videos, the the, the broadcast from Sportsnet Canada, and then uh, the you know the point of view of from Joey's phone in our seats while everyone in the Coliseum was standing for those final twenty seconds. Take us through what your thoughts on the Pulak play and what you saw in Game Four. Well, I mean, you guys had incredible seats there to be that, <laughs> especially on your end. I mean, that 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 moment will last a lifetime, especially if it winds up to be a cup run for the Islanders being that that close. But you know, it was an incredible play. It's a player you, you don't see often, probably never will see, and it's only because of of uh, Varlamov's positioning. If he wasn't 
you know, coming that far out that that play wouldn't have been made uh, possible. But one way or another, it, it did happen. And it was such an amazing play and it needed to happen because if it didn't and, and that goes in for a goal, that uh, the Islanders would have lost that and gone, you know, down 3-1. Uh, going back to Tampa Bay, you're probably thinking they're going to lose the series. Tonight, though, for the Islanders is a must win. And if they don't win tonight, they're a high probability to lose the series. And I say that because Tampa Bay is a team that does not lose games back-to-back. Um, so, you know, they, they have to... Um, you know, you, you got to win tonight. You got to take, you know, control because you're thinking they could win um, game six if they, you know, if they if they win tonight, they they control, um, you know, a huge, um, you know, they control a huge portion of the fate of the rest of the series. So for me, if you're the Islanders, this is a must win. Tampa doesn't lose that often. Like I said, they don't lose a lot um, back to back. So, you know, t- tonight's a, a big win. Uh, they need to get that. Um, the problem is the offense. They, they're just not able to to generate a lot of offense. And situation like you had in last game, I mean, you're you're just hoping and praying it doesn't happen. But to you know to live in uh, to be living on the edge like that, the way they are, you know, it, it's it's dangerous for the Islanders. Yeah, they got three goals in, but you know, you're having a three nothing lead in the third period. It should be relatively calm the rest of the way to be able to close that out. And it's not been that way in, you know, the last game for the Islanders. And it's been that way the whole playoffs. They, they've they struggled to keep um, people out and, and to have comfortable games or get an insurance goal here or there. And it's been especially in the third period, and that's going to be a problem the farther – it could be a problem the farther uh, they go. The power play is also an issue. The power play was working really well against Boston. It hasn't been that way this series. They're one for 11 uh, on the power play in this series. So that's something, um, you know, if that can change and that can pick up, will really help the Islanders um, win this series and go ahead. But tonight is a really uh, pivotal game for them. Nick, is game five, of a, to, to quote Mike here, is game five a must win for the Islanders? Uh, it would definitely help their chances of moving on to the, the cup final, uh, that's for sure. But um, you're looking at a Tampa Bay team since 2019, they're 11-0 following a postseason loss. So, again, it's the team that doesn't falter down the stretch. Uh, they always seem to come back with an aggressive game plan, and they've been a very, very brutal team to play at their home ice. Uh, this is obviously a, a very gritty Islanders team. They have a chance in every game that they play. Uh, very scrappy under Barry Trotz. And I have to give kudos to their fourth line. You know, the guys uh, like Matt Martin, Cal Clutterbuck, uh, those guys are aggressive players on both sides of the puck. It makes it very hard for uh, all the guys that are on the ice at the same time. Uh, so that's another key line to look at if you're an Islanders fan watching the game tonight. Uh, if they can dictate the possession and time of ice time uh, tonight, uh, on the road, that would be a huge advantage for the Islanders in uh, Game 5 tonight. Yeah, um, I think Varlamov has been very, very solid, a very dependable goalie. And like Rob said, if you put Sorokin in, it's almost a clone for uh, a goalie in, in the Islanders' uh, standpoint. So they're in a good spot right now. Obviously, they have to come away with a very positive result because they don't want to be uh, – on the ropes in game seven at home, depending on the situation tonight. Uh, They're going to have to do very good against a lot of Tampa Bay's 
key scorers. He's been naming uh, Braden Point. He's had a goal in seven straight games, actually, which is insane to say. Uh, and uh, Tyler Johnson was uh, fantastic in the third period on Saturday. So those are two guys that can easily come away with some positive results for Tampa tonight. And the list goes on and on. Guys like Kalorn, Stamkos, uh, Palat. These are all guys who they just have to find the right timing and they can be positive uh, impact for the Lightning. So whoever scores the first goal, it's going to set the tempo right away. And I think the Islanders are going to be that team that puts a lot of pressure on early uh, to make sure that Tampa doesn't get the ball rolling early on in the contest. So it's a huge game for the Islanders. If they can come away with a huge victory on the road, uh, beat a Tampa Bay Lightning team two games in a row, something that hasn't been done in two years, uh, it would be fantastic to come back home with a chance to make it to the Stanley Cup Finals. Yeah, Nick's got a great point there. I mean, especially about the Islanders striking first. That would be huge because, look, I'm just going to say it. Tampa Bay is not allowed building. It's real. It, it is. It's. I mean, look. I'm not going to compare it to Coliseum because that's almost incomparable. But just in general, Tampa Bay is not a loud arena. There's not a lot of passion. It's just from what you've seen in past playoff runs with Tampa Bay. They're just. They're not. They're not that loud. It's. It's kind of wild to me when you've had a team this good for so long. You could say that about all their franchises. Yeah. I mean, look, look, so yeah, if the Islanders score first. They're gonna take the, they're gonna take whatever energy is there right out of the building, and that that immediately placed the Islanders' advantage. But uh, but at the same time, you can't discredit Tampa Bay on that because they managed to win the Stanley Cup in completely empty buildings. So maybe that's a thing. Maybe it's just something they like. I don't know. Mike, uh, I want to point to something Rob had said earlier with respect to um, not so much the comparison of Arlamov and Sorokin, but just the performance that we've seen so far. Uh, from Semyon Varlamov, who has really found a way to shake off the rough start, um, which he, which in the first two series against the Penguins um, and the Bruins, he really fell victim to, um, just allowing that first goal four or five minutes into the game. The the Islanders themselves throughout the entire postseason has have really fallen victim to just poor, poor starts. And we saw it again on Saturday uh, when they were outshot 11 to four in the first period. We saw Varlamov make some incredible saves. It ultimately led to the three goals that we saw the momentum shift. And we saw it lead to the three goals that the Islanders scored in that second period. Um, you can also point to just, and you know, aside from the McDonough play that um, Pulak came in to make, I mean, he made such a bad stop on Nikita Kucherov um, on, on a, um, on a cross ice pass that he, that he, that he kicked out the left pad for. So do you feel that with Varlamov in net, um, can he continue just Varlamov alone? Can he continue to carry the Islanders forward? Yeah, I think so. I think the Islanders pr have a pretty solid goaltending situation. He, even if it's not Varlamov, they still have Sorokin on the bench who, 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 as Rob said before, is equally as good, but I, I trust in Varlamov. He's been pretty dependable goalie for them. And he's really, you know, he's really been strong at some points in the playoffs, as you mentioned, you know, he's had areas where he has had his struggles, but he, 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 he is one of the better goalies, especially in the East and the, in the national hockey league in general. But I think when you, when you want to make a cup run, you got to have your goalie playing some strong goaltending. And the, I think he's been putting in some uh, good performances and you know some games have been shaky or whatnot but these are the games where he's got to start turning out 
um, some excellent goaltending performances to keep the Islanders going and keep this, you know, run to the cup uh, potentially alive. I like that you said that there, Mike, because I was the one, unlike unlike Rob and Joey, that vouched for Varlamov in Game 7 last year in the Flyers series, and they were both saying how Thomas Grice was, should have been the starting goaltender, and ultimately Grice was, and led them to the victory that uh, you know supplanted the Islanders in the Eastern Conference Final against Tampa Bay. Um, top of the hour here, 8 o'clock here on the Eastern Observer on the Primetime Rundown. Ian Schreier, Rob DeLuca, Mike Zabo, Nick Diamandis here with you for another hour um, as we're counting down the minutes here till puck drop between the New York Islanders and Tampa Bay Lightning in Game 5 of the Stanley Cup semifinals. I'm sorry, it's still the Eastern Conference Final and the Western Conference Final. You can't convince me otherwise, um, but nevertheless, uh, we're just... We're just we're just happy to be here uh, with you as uh, we get ready for puck drop. Uh, let's shift over now to the other series in the Stanley Cup semifinals, which is, which is between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, game three and game four. Talk about a tale of two different games where we saw Vegas dominate game three and Montreal uh, t- dominate. Uh, the pace of play in game four, and neither of those teams prevailed in either of those respective contests. But let's start with game three because this play was the one that changed it all. This one off the ice here if they get control. Lacing as Anderson got a piece of that. What? Score! Josh Anderson! And Fleury misplays it, and the game is tied. That response by Fleury says it all, doesn't it? You need a break sometimes, and Josh Anderson, who's just been snake bit, been a tough task for him. He hasn't had a point in the last 12 games, and he gets a gift. It gets tipped right here, so it's not icing. So Fleury comes out to play, bobbles it. Hasn't been a busy night for Fleury, and there has trouble with it. Anderson goes to the front of the net, and you know, there's moments you just need a break. Tried to backhand it down into the... I think that Canadians fan holding that replica of the Stanley Cup there. I think that's a little premature. But uh, Rob, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you here because we we spoke a lot last year about Montreal and and how they just were building something special. And this is before they had signed Tyler Toffoli in the offseason, before they had acquired uh, the aforementioned Josh Anderson, who ultimately went on to score the not only the game tying goal but also the overtime goal in Game Three at home to give the Canadians at the time what was a two to one series lead. Um, I, I think we could say, Rob, that a team doesn't just get to the Stanley Cup semifinals, or Eastern Conference final, Western Conference final, whatever you want to call it, by coincidence, even despite how poor that North division in the restructuring was. But Montreal, Rob, they're, they're doing more than just hanging around. Yeah, at this point, that's exactly what it was. I mean, look, I never, I never really doubted Montreal in, in there when they got once they got to the playoffs. This was a team that was that had some little murmur. They were very quiet whispers that they might be able to do a little damage, especially to a team like Toronto and on it. And they came all the way back and did it, did it to them. And then I knew, and I even said it, that the winner of the Toronto Montreal series was going to run over Winnipeg or Edmonton. That wasn't even going to be a question. And <laughs> lo and behold, Montreal ran over Winnipeg. Like it was nothing. And in four. Yeah. Yep, it was in a fa- very quick series. It was not really I wouldn't call it unprecedented. I expected it completely. And but now but now that they're hanging with a team like Vegas, and of course, you know, you're gonna have those Avalanche fans being like, Oh, we wouldn't have folded like this. We wouldn't have lost two games to Montreal. Okay, yeah, yeah yes, you would have, first of all. Um, <laughs> because it, it Montreal is showing they're no slouch. 
Carey Price is playing like it's 2015 or something out there. He doesn't care what year it is. He doesn't care how old he is. He cares about finally getting what he deserves, what he has worked so hard for this organization that he himself deserves more than anybody, and that's a Stanley Cup. I would love to see Carey Price win a Stanley Cup. Not necessarily the Montreal Canadiens. I would like to see Carey Price win a Stanley Cup. And, uh, and, and again, when I say it, I, we, I'm pretty sure we touched on this last week, Ian. Like, let's talk let, like the, the, Carey Price playing like it's 2015 or something. Corey Perry playing like it's 2010 or something. Like, he, they, do, they don't care what year it is. They're playing in 2021 hockey like they're back in their primes and because they want it. They want to win. And I admire that tenacity, and I think it's going to be an interesting series. I mean, look, we're only talking about Game 3 here. Obviously, we have – there was a little change of story in Game 4, and so that's why the series is tied, and Game 5 is tomorrow, back in Vegas. So – and let me tell you something, Vegas, I'll tell you what, they may be new, and, you know, you can call their fans bandwagon, regardless if they are or not. They show up. They are loud in Vegas. I went to T-Mobile Arena in game one against Minnesota. And let me tell you, they are some loud people. They love their hockey team out there in Vegas. I mean, that it was a one-nothing final in overtime that the Wild won, but the energy in the building never wavered. They were it was there from start to finish. And well, after all, when they were robbed of their XFL franchise, Rob, they were just waiting for sports for its so return to Sin City. You <laughs> can't forget those things, of course. But like I said, these fans are hungry. They finally have professional sports out there, and they're loving every single second of it. It makes me wonder what Las Vegas Raiders games are going to be like now that they can have full capacity. Uh, that's going to be some excite. That's going to be some exciting games. I'm excited to see that. But yeah, overall, I think this this much like tonight's game five, tomorrow's game five. Very, very crucial because it, it's also clear, it's become clear that it's very hard to win on the road, especially as the series gets later. So sure. we're going to see what happens. Mike, I want to stick with the Montreal point here with you for a second before we shift the conversation over to Vegas in game four. Um, is it hard to not be buying what Montreal is doing right now? Oh, yeah. I mean, the way they're just playing, it's legit hockey. They're, they're really sound defensively. Um, Carey Price, as you said, for any team trying to make it uh, through, uh, you know, to Stanley Cup run, you got to have strong goaltending. And Carey, as Rob said, Carey Price is is turning the clock, and that's really what's going to, you know, stem the rest of your your team and really help out your offense. And and all is when you have, you know, goal, uh, you know, goalie there making save after save, keeping it to a low scoring game, and that, that's. You know where it starts from, and they're they're doing this against an impressive uh, Vegas Golden Knights squad, and it's really impressive to see. And I, I don't think you can count them out and not buy into what they're doing. Nick, I definitely want to get to you uh, with respect to the Montreal Vegas series, but Rob did set the table for what occurred in Game Four, and we're just going to take a quick video break here to show what happened in Game Four. There's Pacioretty, four shots on goal, trying to swoop in front, plays it in front of the net. series is tied at two games apiece. As you can see, I'm not going to really show the replay there, but you, you saw what took place that uh, Nicholas Waugh scored uh, what felt like 
just seconds um, into the overtime period between uh, Vegas and Montreal. And actually, if, uh, for anyone that watched the intermission uh, after the third period, between third period and overtime, Patrick Sharp had said that probably for, for the opening few minutes of overtime, you're going to see the ice open up a little bit. You're going to see teams take be aggressive and take some chances. And we saw that right away uh, for Vegas, who was a team that was really uh, – I don't want to say manhandle because that's the wrong term. I mean, they, Alex Tuck missed the net more times than he hit the net in game four last night. However, um, you know, Montreal was the better team throughout game uh, for, for the better part of game four. I mean, up until maybe the last 10 minutes um, of game three. I mean, we saw the Paul Byron goal on the breakaway to stake Montreal to that one nothing lead. And Braden McNabb somehow finds a way just to sneak one past Carey Price uh, right between his blocker and his chest and uh, tied the game. And the game ultimately went to overtime with Wass scoring that game winner. Um, right now, Nick, as you, as you, as you, you know, from your purview, as you see the Vegas Montreal series, um, how important, I mean, Rob already kind of discussed how important game five is, but with game five, you know, back tomorrow in Vegas, does that, does that play last night in overtime now put Vegas back over the top? Oh, that absolutely transfers the momentum going back to the T-Mobile arena. Um, It's a very scrappy series. These two teams are leading 110%. Sorry, a little tongue twister there. Uh, 110% on the ice uh, in all four games in the series so far. It's been very fun to watch. And these are two teams that have something to prove. You know, Vegas coming in, trying to prove that they're just not a one-and-done type of team. Uh, and that their Stanley Cup run in their first season wasn't a fluke. And then you have Montreal trying to prove that they're an up-and-coming team that's a force to be reckoned with in the future of the NHL. So whoever wins this series, they're going to hang their heads up high. And obviously, both teams will have plenty to look forward to uh, beyond this year. Uh, a couple things I do want to note. Uh, the defensemen on Vegas have been on fire. You had McNabb firing a couple goals this series. They've had seven uh, in the postseason, which is a single season record higher uh, in NHL playoffs, which is something to, uh, yeah, to he highlight Pet- for sure. He and Petrangelo for sure. Yep. Yep. And uh, Montreal, equally as stifling on defense, they're 28 for 28 on the penalty kill this playoffs. Uh, that's something that has been done in almost a, dec- a decade. Uh, and they have three shorthanded goals this playoffs. So, again, a lot of things have to be going right for both teams in order to get some uh, separation uh, in this series. I do anticipate it going all the way to seven. Uh, And again, it's going to be who's the better goaltender uh, the rest of the way. You have two very experienced, very capable guys in Flurry and Price uh, between the pipes. Whoever's the strongest man, they'll take their team to the Stanley Cup final from there. Rob, I think Nick made a couple of great points that I want you to elaborate on, especially with respect to the Vegas power play and goaltending. Um, as he had mentioned, uh, Montreal's power uh, penalty kill, excuse me, is perfect in this series. But more importantly, the goaltending. And I, and I didn't mention this earlier, and I want to mention this now about the play of Robin Leonard um, in game four uh, for the Vegas Golden Knights. I mean, just finally Braden McNabb getting his goalie a goal, um, and ultimately the, the Golden Knights won in overtime. But uh, when you look at the, the Golden Knights going back home for Game 5, should there be any discussion at this point between what we saw in Game 3 and Game 4 as to who should be starting in net in Game 5? Look, there's a lot of the, – the thing about those games is they were both 2-1 finals. So it's a tough call because both goaltenders are very good. I think, that, I think a rumor is out there already that they're going to go back to flurry. 
So, oh wow. Okay. So yeah, because Leonard's only played that. That was only Leonard's second game of the playoffs. So it's it's he's not he's he's the number. T- he's a one C essentially. He's getting he's getting used very sparingly. He's for just to give Flurry a little rest because you with the way Flurry's playing, you ride the hot hand. You you dance with the date that brought you, but. It could get a little when you have two great goaltenders like that. You have the ability to make that swap. I love the way Robin Leonard played last night. I'm a huge fan of his. I think he's great. I think he. I would not be shocked if that rumor about Flurry was false and Leonard's going again tomorrow. But I also see that they want to go back to Flurry. They're just they're trying to ride Flurry because this is is one of his last dances. So you know what. Uh, we'll see what happens here. And honestly, I, I mean, personally, I think I'd go back to flurry. I mean, he, he, yes. Game three is essentially his fault, but nonetheless, it is now it's, it's a best out of three. And given the choice between the two, I take the more experienced guy in Mark Andre flurry. So it's, it's going to be tight. It's going to be great. And and as as the Islanders lightning game is almost underway, just about to get the anthem going, so we will have puck drop in just a couple of minutes. But I think in, in terms to Vegas and Montreal, this is gonna it's gonna be a great game tomorrow because we saw how Montreal was able to respond in game two. So they're not scared of playing in front of a full house anymore. Now they're ready for it. So this it's gonna be a it's gonna be a close, tight game with a lot of great goaltending once again. Mike, do you agree with the rumor that Flurry should be the one in goal for Game Five? I do. I, I agree with the rumor. I agree with a lot of what Rob said there. I, I, he's right. I mean, it's essentially best of three series. You just have, you know, if it's going to go all the way, you just have five, six, and seven left. You go with your experience. I get he made a horrible error, Mark Andre Flurry, but he has a wealth of experience, especially in the playoffs. You, you, you go with him. You, you, he's not going to make that error. And nine times out of ten, he's not going to make that error. He, you know, he spent the time on the bench. He's learned from his mistake. He's an experienced professional. You go with that in game five and the rest of the way uh, through this series. You don't want to leave anything to chance. I know, you know, Lehner had a great uh, game four, but, you know, Flurry's the guy. He's got the experience. You, you, you want to you know, know what you're getting at this point in the playoffs with your goal. Yeah, I'd really go with that and, and uh, go from there with uh, Vegas. Gents, I want to go once around the horn to each of the three of you. I'm going to start with my co-host here, Rob DeLuca, and get your predictions um, at this point for the remainder of the Stanley Cup semifinals. Who are the two teams that will be playing for Lord Stanley's Cup next week? All right. It's going to be a tight one here, but at this point, I'm – at this point, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to my guns, stick to the favorites. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Vegas and Tampa Bay find find a way to escape what has been a much harder challenge than I think either team anticipated. But that's the beauty of the NHL playoffs is that you get the unexpected, and and I personally thought that these these series are already slated to go longer than I thought they would because there's already guaranteed six games, so it'll come down to tonight and. But yeah, I, I think overall, I think they're going to be. Well, I think they're both going to be seven game series, if you ask me. So they're going to, there's going to be wear and tear. But ultimately, when when you get back into your home buildings in a game seven, it makes a difference. So I, I that's why I've got Vegas and Tampa. Nick, your prediction. 
Yeah, I have to agree with Rob there. I think it's going to go to seven games in both series. I think it comes down to the teams that have better weapons on offense, and that's um, Vegas and Tampa. Uh, these are two teams that have been um, incredibly difficult to defend throughout the entire season, let alone the playoffs. And when you look at a team like Tampa, a team that's been here before, they've done it. They've won a couple of Stanley Cups uh, over the last 20 years. You know, they're here to prove that this is a dynasty. That we may have some guys that are veterans who are on their way up, but we have the guys that are young and upcomers that will be here for an extended period of time uh, and dominate the league for years to come. And in regards to Vegas, it's a very similar story. This is a franchise that's trying to prove themselves as a franchise that will be a contender in the West Conference for years to come. And they want to prove that their first season as an organization wasn't a fluke and that you know, year in, year out, they're going to be in this situation every single time. So I think both series will end in seven. Both favorites will move on to the Stanley Cup. Final. Mike, are we going to go three for three with Tampa and uh, Vegas? Or are you leaning another way? Uh, it's a very tough call, but we are going to go three for three here. And I am going Vegas, Tampa. And the only reason why Tampa is because even if the, the Islanders do win tonight or even if they don't, I don't really see Tampa losing two, two games at home in, in the final three games of uh, this series. Uh, I, I just don't see it happening. Uh, you know, as much as Islander fans will hate me for saying that, but <laughs> it, it, it's going to really be, you know, in the, to have Tampa lose, you know, two games at home in these last, you know, three games of the series is, a, is tough to ask. Gentlemen, let's uh, turn over now to the baseball diamond and uh, visit some news of what's going on in Major League Baseball. And uh, although he was a game time decision and went on to pitch five one hit innings today, Jacob Degrom lowered his ERA to a Major League Baseball best zero point five zero earned run average. Even though um, in his last two starts, um, that coming against the San Diego Padres and the Chicago Cubs, both games I can say that I was at at City Field, um, he had left with some kind of discomfort first with. Uh, uh, some discomfort in his finger. And then also then later on, then on Wednesday after the, um, excuse me, on Wednesday during the Cubs game left after three innings because he was feeling discomfort um, in his lat. So uh, he went out there, he got the all clear um, and happened to lead the Mets to another, to a four two victory today against the Braves in game one of their double header. But a text, he had a text chain that got leaked with um, Atlanta Braves first baseman, Freddie Freeman uh, stating that, you don't need to be out there swinging the bat considering he's batting over 400 and driving in RBIs and key situations for the Mets. The Major League Baseball needs you out there every fifth day. DeLuca, is it finally time, and hopefully it is next year, and I'm saying that selfishly as a fan, is it finally time for the Universal DH? It's been time for ever. Who are we kidding? Come on. I mean, look. Is Jacob DeGrom really good at hitting the baseball? Yeah, clearly. He has more <laughs> R- he has more RBIs as a hitter than he does runs given up total as a pitcher. That's when you know and we're in the end, and we're at the end of June. That's when you know things are absurd as the Tampa Bay Lightning, excuse me for breaking the news, have already struck 45 seconds into the hockey game. So it's one nothing Tampa. You've Stamkos. <laughs> and it's who else but the captain. So already the Lightning are saying we are ready to go and see that's just me jinxing them about saying uh varlamov hasn't had any poor starts lately but they were 45 seconds in to be fair it was a (laughs) a freak bounce 
with a wide open net. But nonetheless, I'm I'm convinced J Jacob Degrom is from Mars at this point. He's like they checked they checked him for the sticky stuff because today is Monday. It's the first day of checking starters for the for these substances, and obviously Jacob came back clean. So what we what they need to check for is people from other planets because is this man human anymore? At this point, no. It's hard to believe that a thirty that a thirty two year old uh, you know can't throw one hundred and two miles per hour. You must be putting something on those baseballs. Uh, <laughs> you know, Nick. As exciting as it is, Nick, to see Jacob Degrom swinging the bat the way he is, you worry because he did. Degrom did state uh, that so, that some of the discomfort he felt was from him physically swinging the bat. So um, even though I know as fans and you as a Yankee fan, Nick and Mike also as a Yankee fan. Um, you know, spending your whole life seeing the DH and not seeing pitchers hit except for in a National League ballpark. Um, and, and how many times again a year do you see that? Uh, how important is it for God to preserve guys like DeGrom in the National League and uh, among other among other elite pitchers, such as like a Walker Bueller or, you know, we can go down the list of, of National League pitchers. But how important is it to take the bat out of their hands to protect their arms? It's crucial. Uh, I don't know why so many people are clinging to the idea that pitches in the National League should be hitting and are so closed off on the idea of it possibly disappearing. Um, every conversation that I have in this topic, I just talk to some Met fans that basically have no intentions of wanting to see Universal DH. And I tell them, well, if you had a DH, you probably win the 2015 World Series. Yeah. Because – you had the guys on the on the bench who you could have relied on uh, playing in those games at City Field, but instead you had to rely on a pitcher basically getting the job done in some unopportune times in that World Series, and sometimes that gets them to shut up a little bit. And uh, not that that's the goal, but it gets a lot of people thinking. You know, a lot of these National League teams they could be doing a lot better in the playoffs when it comes to uh, offensive performance. We've seen it time and time again. Pitchers in the National League dominating in the playoffs. You've got Madison Bumgarners, Clayton Kershaw's recently. Uh, but a lot of the guys that um, that need to stay healthy for these teams and they get injured and sometimes it's base running or it's at the plate itself, it really hurts their chances of progressing into the postseason. So I definitely – think that it's time for the universal DH to happen. It should have happened a long time ago as Rob pointed to. And you could see Jacob deGrom pitching until he's 40, 45 at this point, if he doesn't uh, have a chance to hurt himself, either swinging the bat or running the bases. Mike, I definitely want to get to you here in a second, but I want to address a comment that we've gotten. We thank everybody for tuning in and bringing your comments. But uh, Andrew, with a question asking, you guys think he breaks the ERA record? Well, um, his ERA right now is a sparkling, as we mentioned, a 0 0.50. And I and that when I went to the Met game with a friend a couple weeks ago to the Mets-Padres game, um, we were discussing actually uh, what would happen if, uh, you know, how that he wouldn't be able to, and think about it, this is two starts ago, uh, where he wouldn't be able, um, excuse me, as we pull uh, Nick back in here. Um, I guess the, que the question remains, uh, how, you know, how many runs he'd physically have to give up at this point over the second half of the season for him to not exceed uh, Bob Gibson's single season record. Um, and I think at this point, um, 
we were doing the math, and it, it's just something absurd at this point if, if Jacob DeGrom remains on this path, even when he starts uh, to give up runs, say, in the, in the dog days of July and August, because what he's doing right now is just ungodly and unheard of. So, I mean, do I, I'm going to ask the question out of the rest of the panel. You heard from the biased Mets fan here. I'll ask the three Yankee fans in the room now. I mean, is, is anyone stopping Jacob DeGrom from breaking that record at this point? Just himself, really. I mean, or an, or an injury, because if he obviously you got a, I'm sure there's a games minimum out there he, he'd have to reach. And obviously, if he if he is shut down for a long period of time with this with any of these injuries, people will put an asterisk on it anyway, because that's just how people are these days. So I think but overall, I mean, look, look, is this impressive? Yes, but. He is going to give up another run eventually. He is he's not going to be throwing. He's not going to keep throwing shutouts at this rate. And if he and if he does, I I'll figure some. I'll figure something out as a as a uh, punishment or something. But that's how confident I am that he can't keep this up forever. He can't go the rest of the season only giving up four runs. So, I honestly. I honestly ahead, think Nick, a lot ahead. of this has to do with Luis Rojas, though, too, because the way that DeGrom has been handled the last month, he's had a couple of injury scares to deal with. It's going to be crucial for him to manage the way that he's been managing lately and making sure that he's not overusing him because this is going to be a Mets team that is going to be a force to be reckoned with in October, and a lot of New Yorkers know that. And in order for the Mets to really go the distance, they're going to need him to be healthy, and that's just yep. – Plain fact. So I think it's very beneficial for the Mets too. obviously throw his five, six, seven strong innings of work, but also gets those Mets relief pitchers some key vital appearances in crunch time when they need to close out games like this. We know this is a better bullpen that the Mets have had in recent years. Uh, you have guys like Trevor May, Edwin Diaz, and now Seth Lugo in the mix. You know, these are going to be three guys that they're going to be very, very critical to their success in October. So if Luis Rojas does a good job managing the situation, I don't see Jacob deGrom losing his momentum that he has right now. Uh, I think the ERA conversation could be a lock at this point, but it all depends on him staying healthy. Mike, why don't you wrap up this point on DeGrom for us? But most importantly, uh, it, it, we know it's overdue for the universal DH, but seeing and hearing that the best pitcher in baseball potentially could have suffered a very serious injury from swinging the bat, how much more important does that make the universal DH going forward? Well, it's so much more important. And, you know, Com Commissioner Rob Manfred should really be, you know, taking that, you know, leaked text to heart because this is Jacob DeGrom. This is box office. This is one of your better, you know, products out there you know he's must see every time Jacob DeGrom is starting everybody especially this season is putting their eyeballs on the television so the last thing you want if you're Rob Manfred or anybody in the MLB office is to have a, a guy like Jacob DeGrom go down for any sort of extended period of time so I think for the Mets point of view I think they should probably skip a start for him here and there, because the last couple of starts, it seemed like he has been laboring. And now that you do have Seth Lugo back, it gives you an option for, you know, maybe to skip the Grom start and throw Lugo in there in a bullpen game or something like that. But I think they will have to manage him a little bit uh, more as you go through the rest of the year. Probably don't push him past too much past six innings the rest of the way until you get to October so he doesn't get too burned out or any nagging injuries doesn't come up too late in the season. But, I mean, yeah, on the universal DH part, 
everybody wants to talk about how good he is as a hitter, and that's probably the only, you know, the, the last hill to die on for those who still want to keep the, the pitcher uh, uh, in as a batter, um, you know, kind of system. He, he's probably the, the only guy you're still, you still have a case for because you want to see him batting. But, I mean, other than him, is there really a, another pitcher in the league who is hitting like, you know, a normal hitter? No. It, it, I mean, they're automatic outs. I think uh, last year the stats were, you know, the pitching spot in, in the National League, they were all batting collectively at like 120. I mean, who wants to see that? It's an automatic out. And the worst part is when – it's an American League team in a National League ballpark. It, the games are just so cringy to watch when you get to that part of the order and you have the American League pitcher who, you know, A, maybe he was traded from a National League team and, you know, hasn't, you know, even picked up a bat since then, or he's pitched in the American League all his life, uh, you know, all his career and hasn't, you know, picked up a bat since high school or college. And now all of a sudden they're in a National League ballpark and, they're like, oh, we have to bunt here, and we're in the safety squeeze, and they're, they're just trying so hard and doing stuff that they have absolutely no idea how to do, and that, just that part of it is, is so cringy to watch and, and uh, why it has to go. But, yeah, on the Jacob DeGrom front, you know, get get the bat out of his hands and keep the, keep the ball in his hands for him to pitch because he is just must-watch right now, and there is no chance that he's not going to have the ERA record. It, it's absolutely absurd what we're seeing right now. <laughs> <laughs> more than warranted of those chance of MVP that we've been hearing at City Field of late, but something we've that the pitchers know that they've been doing, or at least maybe subknowingly know that they're doing, has been uh, the emergence now of, of of substance usage on the baseballs um, that Rob had mentioned uh, starting today uh, that the umpires and the, the, the league office was going to crack down on to state um, that they were going to check the ball at the start of every game. And if you saw Jacob DeGrom when he took the hill for the first inning of his start today against the Braves, he actually smirked and smiled and, um, you know, at, at the plate umpire because it's, 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 you know, it's, it's ridiculous how much this, this game is change is changing and continuing to change. And I, and I understand, I mean, to a certain extent, I mean, this feels, and, and I do want to, I do have a clip I want to play, but Rob, I'll start with you here again. This feels a little bit like, they're throwing baby out with the bathwater with respect to the Astros scandal. They just don't want another one. Yeah, they, no, they don't. They don't. They don't want another one. And I don't. And, uh, it's it's this one's tough to like talk about, like because this this is something that's clearly affecting every pitcher except for Jake Degrom. <laughs> I, I, I kid you not. And it's it seems like every pitcher has lost a little bit of velocity on their stuff, a little bit of grip on on the ball because they they simply when you're out there sweating like that, you're not going to have a firm grip. And and people will say, oh, but the rosin bag. Yeah, the rosin bag doesn't help you keep a grip on the ball. It helps you dry your hands, but it doesn't give you a better grip on the ball. So it's it's really tough to the point that – I mean, look, seeing what these pictures on Twitter surfacing of people holding a ball with spider tack on their hands and literally how the ball's practically just staying stuck to their hand in midair. I get that. By like a, a spider web, it looks like basically. Yeah, it's, there's like a mini spider web, but it's it's tough. I mean, I feel for some of these pitches, but at the same time, yeah, like using because you, you get the bat, the batters get to use a certain amount of pine tar. They get to use all these other things to help with their bat, help grip the grip the bat. So why can't pitchers use something to help grip the ball? We're talking about the same thing here. 
Well, apparently it affects spin rate, and the one pitcher that it's most certainly bothering is uh, Rays pitching ace Tyler Glasnow. And funny that we're going back to another discussion about a team from Tampa, but uh, Tyler Glasnow was diagnosed recently with a partially torn UCL, which usually requires at some point Tommy John surgery. Um, they're, the Rays at this point are trying to avoid it and trying to treat it as much as possible to get uh, the Rays back, the Rays on a, another path, I should say, to – um, you know, contending for the World Series as they did last year when they faced the Dodgers. And uh, he blames, uh, you know, this crackdown on substances for the result of his injury. Take a look. Tyler, you were pretty frustrated about the ball last night. Just any more thought as to whether that may have kind of played a part in any of this or is, has that kind of entered your mind yet? Convenient and like, but I 100% believe that contributed to me getting hurt. Uh, no doubt, without a doubt. Um, I think like it's it's ridiculous. I'm just gonna. I have used sticky stuff before. It's ridiculous that like it seems like this whole public perception of like, oh, it's just like select few people. Like your favorite pitcher probably 50 years ago was using something too. Like if you felt these balls, how inconsistent they were. Like you have to use something. So in the past, I my like substance of choice is sunscreen and rosin. Like just nothing egregious, something to where I can get a grip on the ball so it doesn't feel dusty. But two starts ago against the Nationals. I went cold turkey, nothing. And before that start, I remember when all this stuff came out, I was talking to people and talking to doctors. And they were like, the thing that maybe MLB doesn't realize or that players don't realize is like, what, what is the injury? Like, what, what is the prevention of like, maybe it'll add to injuries. And in my mind, I was like, that sounds dumb. That sounds like an excuse a player would use to make sure he can use sticky stuff. But I threw to. There you heard the gist pretty much of what Tyler Glasnow had said um, to the press regarding the fact that he does you did use a mix of sunscreen and rosin to at least be able to grip the ball. Um, Nick, based on what you heard there from the Rays star pitcher, do you agree or disagree with his point? Uh, I agree to somewhat of a degree. I mean, this is, from what it sounds like, a procedure that he was so used to, to doing uh, without any um, critical attention. Um, and I do feel for guys like Tyler Glasnow because at the end of the day, an injury like this, it hurts his wallet and it hurts his potential of, you know, hopefully, you know, coming back to the level of talent that he was before this injury. Um, UCL tears are no joke. Obviously, um, there's some guys that don't recover from an injury like this. Um, and then there's guys that seem to figure out a way to reinvent themselves on the mound. But a guy like Tyler Glasnow, he was, you know, high velocity fastball, couple different breaking uh, balls that he can uh, utilize in his repertoire. And right now he's going to have to rehab for at least six to 12 months right now with the UCL tear. So um, it's going to be obviously a very interesting situation to monitor. You know, this is going to be something that obviously you're going to have some people on both sides of the discussion and, you know, it's just going to be interesting to see if more guys like Lasno get hurt because of this. I know we have an update on what's going on between the Islanders and the Lightning, but Mike, I want to get to your response um, with regards to what Tyler Glasnow had said. Do you? I mean, it, it, do we feel that where you know, say for example, you're going out in the middle of a game in July in the Bronx and it's 100 degrees. Um, and you need to wear sunscreen out there. I mean, are they going to fault you for wearing sunscreen? I mean, does it really help with their spin rate? Are they really so, as we want to call it, cheating? Or is this, or do you feel that the MLB is on brand with what they're doing here to make a statement as to 
yeah, maybe this is actually helping the pitchers and lowering their ERA and making their pitchers move, making their pitches, excuse me, move more than they should. Well, the thing in regards to the MLB thing is, this is a sport in baseball that has struggled with cheating or what is considered cheating ever since its existence, really. And this is a rule that we've always known about, you know, the rule that pitchers, you know, they would always crack down on pine tar if you'd ever, the whole Michael Pineda incident that we saw years ago yep. where he had a ton of pine tar on his neck and would keep going to it. They threw him out of the game for that. But either way, it's always been, a, you know, an issue that's, it's a, really been a rule that's never really been fully enforced for decades or you know, clearly defined. I believe Aaron Judge said something similar to that, but it's never really been clearly defined as to what the rules of what they, you know, what pitchers can and can't use, or how much they can use, or or whatnot. But I, I think it's tricky in that I don't think ever anybody ever really realized any front office organizations realized maybe the effect of any sort of substance could have on the ball in terms of spin rate, in terms of making pitches more effective. But I think it was really Houston who, who learned it first. Aside from, you know, the trash can stuff, they <laughs> really, you know, whether it's spider tack or whatever the hell else is out there, you know, they re it really started to become a thing where these sticky substances were weaponized to manipulate spin rates and drive them through the roof to really enhance, you know, your fastballs or any of your other pitches or whatnot. So I think what... You know, if there's a conversation about spider tat that you don't want to have that in there, because as Rob said, you you saw all the you know all the pictures on social media about how it just you know sticks on your hand when you have a lot of it on. So I think the conversation is valid there. If you you say to pitchers, let's not use spider tack, let's not use X, Y, and Z, but you can use this. Um, you know, I think that's fair to say. But I think one way or another, it is an essential function. The the pitchers need something whether it's because of risk or injury or, uh, you know, or, or to the pitcher or more so to the fact that it is a risk for the hitter. If you're, you know, you're in the playoffs or you're in the middle of the season where, or early in the season, you're on a, you know, a cold start in, in you know, a cold night uh, in early April, late March in Detroit or Minnesota, or you're in the playoffs or whatnot, where it's very, it's very cold in those times of the year. You need something to grip the baseball. It's been said when you're in a colder environment, the baseball feels like a cue ball. How the, you know, how are you going to throw that? So pitchers need to be able to have a command on the baseball. Otherwise, you're going to see hitters get hit a lot more often and punt. And they, you know, hitters are complaining about spin right now. And oh, we're not able to hit the ball as much because they're manipulating the ball with spin rate and whatnot and doing this and doing that. Well then hitters, you know, you can't win because then hitters are going to complain. If you crack down on this stuff, they're not using anything and they're probably going to get plunked more often. So I think it's a tough conversation, but I think one way or another, the pitchers have to use something to grip the ball. But I think the, the MLB has to clearly define what substances can or can't be used. And I think that the issue will really be cleared up. Well, I think the the way it's going to be cleared up, unfortunately, Mike, is we're going to see more and more pitchers just start to sustain injuries. Unfortunately, e even in this so-called dead ball era right now of baseball that we're seeing, or the doctored ball era, I guess, um, you know, where we're seeing less home runs, but you know, it also could result in more injuries uh, for pitchers, and that's going to create a lot of issues among owners and 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 front office. 
Well, that's the other issue that Tyler Glass now did bring up is that this was done in the middle of the season, you know, so pitchers have already gone through spring training. You're already halfway through the year. You've got into a routine and now they've sprung this on you. It would have been better if they'd done it in the off season. And as you said, with the Dr. Ball, MLB manipulated the ball this off season without any heads up uh, to the pitcher. So that's another factor layering on top of all of this. It's a shame because Tyler Glass now is one of the better pitchers in the American League and probably was a favorite for the AL Cy Young. And sure. if he's going to be down for you know Tommy John and out for a year, that's just a huge loss for MLB and its commercial value in general. Yeah, I mean, it would be a full year at this point in uh, the 2022 uh, baseball season. And uh, before we get to our final MLB point, we're going to discuss a little Yankees. But uh, we have an update in Game 5 between the Islanders and Lightning. And Yanni Gord has put the Lightning on the board again. So it's now 2 nothing, uh Tampa Bay uh, with under 7 to go in the first period from Amelie Arena. Um, right now, just a very decisive... I mean, the Islanders have uh, taken the game five in each of their last two series, but right now kind of with their backs against the wall here, still early, but first period Tampa leading two nothing on goals by Steven Stamkos and Yanni Gord. Uh, gentlemen, let's move over to the Bronx where uh, I'm not sure, you know, enough can be said about the Yankees uh, in their last two series against the Toronto Blue Jays and the Oakland A's, both teams that can hit the ball quite well, but other than they can really turn a triple play quite well, can't, can't they? Um, you know, the Yanks are now 5-1 and one in their last six after sweeping the three-game series from the Jays and taking two of three uh, from Oakland. And ultimately, in yesterday's game against Oakland, it was a triple play after Chapman had walked the first two batters that ended the, the baseball game and uh, had the Yankees take the rubber game of that series. So, Rob, let's take away the triple plays right now. Do we like what the Yankees are showing all of a sudden? Uh, it's, for me, it's it's not enough. But, I mean, look, you, you, they've turned three triple plays in a month, <laughs> which, most teams don't, which most which teams don't do in a year. They already have the re- they already have the record now, right? They tied the record for most in a, in a season, and it's it, there's got to be more. Look, I like the the shutdown pitching from the starters again, but it's, it's got to continue. And the hitting needs to be a little more consistent because the, the Yankees still weren't scoring a whole lot of runs. They were winning two to one. They were, they, there was a game they won five, one, they were winning. It, it's, it's a lot of inconsistency still. And it's, it's not enough for me to turn a corner yet, but look, it's like Rob, but do you think, and I'm sorry to cut you off there. Do yeah. you think that, Considering the opposition that it came against, you're talking about a team like Toronto that right. has such young stars that can swing the bat, or a team like Oakland that's leading the AL West right now. Does that? I know you're saying you haven't seen enough yeah, yet. That but it helps. Is- it will, I will say, turning, doing it against a team like Oakland, doing it against a team like Toronto. You know, you beat beating a division rival never easy, regardless of who it is. It doesn't matter. And then beating the best team in the AL West, also two out of three, very impressive. We like to see these things, but. It's it's got to continue now. Now they got to take it in their next series. They got to they got it's got to be consistent. They got to keep winning. We got to see the team that we saw in April in the beginning of May, where they were winning every single series and sweeping and or taking two out of three at minimum, three out of four. They this is what this is the Yankee baseball that needs to continue to be played if they want to turn this around and have a shot at the division because they're still they're still four games back right now so they got they got some work to do. 
exactly four and a half back of the Boston Red Sox with a three-game series coming up at Fenway next weekend, uh, sandwiched now by a three-game home series with the Kansas City Royals. Uh, Nick, do you agree with Rob's point? Do you think you still need to see some more, or are you, ex- are you happy on the, with the path that the Yankees are on right now? Well, clearly we do have to see some more, uh, and that's on all sides of the baseball. Uh, defensively, we're still 22nd in the league in defensive runs saved. Uh, it's clearly not the number that uh, Yankee fans or the Yankee organization itself want to see uh, from their defense. Um, and again, you have to see more consistency from majority of the lineup. It just can't be Aaron Judge and Gary Sanchez of late, you know, carrying the team on their shoulders offensively. Um, John Carlos Sand's been doing pretty well. Um, he's been having multi-hit games over the last couple of weeks. He's had couple games where he's had multi-homers. He did that against Toronto recently. Uh, So he's been starting to uh, get some more consistent uh, time and better at bats in lately. And DJ LeMahieu, he's got to figure out what's been lacking from the last couple of um, years comparing to today. Obviously, batting 260 is obviously not the number that he wants to be at right now. But again, a lot of Guys on this team could definitely see a second half charge uh, leading into the playoffs. And they know that they're right there four games back, obviously well within reach with a couple months left in the regular season. And they just got to see more consistency in the pitching game too. You know, Garrett Cole, not as lights out as he's been advertised over the last couple of years. And you have to see more consistency with the rest of the rotation. Uh, Montgomery has been solid. Herman has been getting a little bit lit up lately. Uh, and they're missing guys like Corey Kluber. Uh, so it's going to be a wild finish for the regular season. But I do still have faith in this team that they can at least uh, clinch a wild card spot if they can't catch Tampa Bay or Boston. Mike, as uh, Nick had mentioned, the big, you know, uh, on top of what's been going on with the rotation, I feel like we mentioned this, Rob, week to week, um, you know, with respect to, uh, you know, the Yankees and and, and the, the struggles or the inconsistencies, I should say, in the rotation. But, you know, they're getting contributions, Mike, from elsewhere um, in the lineup. Guys not named Stanton, guys not named Judge. You're, you're, they're getting contributions from Clint Frazier and Miguel Andujar and Ronet Odor. I mean, did you expect to hear that name be, you know, turning into a significant contributor for the Yankees this year? So um, they're, they're not clicking on all cylinders yet, but do you feel that they're on their way? It could be. They're five, game, they're five games over 500. I'm not going to totally buy into it at this point, but they're a team – they're kind of an average team. They're good one week and bad the next. They're good in that, you know – they, they just took two out of three on the the best team in the AL West and swept the Blue Jays. And then, you know, the next, the you know, another week they followed up by, you know, losing, getting swept by the Tigers. That's just how they, they are. And, you know, I'm not totally convinced that, you know, they're going to, you know, change from that. I still, again, just as Rob and Nick said, I still need to see a little bit more, especially on the offensive end. I mean, Pitching, yeah, some of these starters are a little bit inconsistent, but uh, you're not totally surprised by that. Jordan Montgomery is not an ace. He's not going to be a guy that's lights out every single, you know, start or whatnot. He's a guy, he's always going to give up, you know, two or three runs here and there, but he has been solid. Domingo Herman, for whatever reason, just loves to give up home runs at home (laughs) rather than on the road. But um, He's lights out on the road, though. 
you know, lights out on the road, but, you know, that porch in left field, really killed in right field, really killed the stadium. It's not even the short porch. He gets no, lit up into the second. It, it, yeah, it's it's uh, him playing the way he plays, which is one fluky, one good fluke year, and the rest of it is nothing. Yeah, it, it's very inconsistent from uh, from Herman and the rest of the pitching staff. Corey Kluber going down really hurts because he, at he the time when he yeah. went down, because he was really starting to emerge as the number two guy in that staff. And I think honestly, you know, the Yankees, one way or another, even if they do pick it up on offense, they they need another outfielder. They need a starting uh, pitcher. Uh, obviously, it's probably not going to be an ace given what they have to trade on their major league uh, roster or in their minor leagues. Um, but you know they do need a starter in there. Um, they do need uh, yet another outfielder um, in there. Um, so one way or another, even if this team starts to pick it up offensively, they still need something. We've seen, you know, Gary Sanchez. As much as I'm not a Gary Sanchez fan, you do have to give props of what he's been doing over the last 20, 30 games or so, hitting 330, and he probably, yep. you know, sneaking in there, sneaking in an All Star ballot, probably given what you know, how poor the rest of the American League catchers are. Um, but, you know, Aaron Judge is is pulling his weight. Giancarlo Stanton starting to wake up after his struggles after coming off um, the IL. But the biggest thing that's going to unlock this Yankee offense is DJ LeMahieu. And, you know, the last two years, he was the MVP of this team. He carried yep. his offense. He was hitting in, hitting in every single situation you needed him to. It didn't have to be a home run. But he was always bringing, you know, getting his RBIs, hitting with runners in scoring position, and he hasn't been hitting the same way this year. His average has dropped from last year to this year, a hundred points. And I'm fully confident that he's going to get back to being himself. Maybe he's going to wind up around 280, 290 if all things go well toward the end of the year. So I'm fully confident that he'll get there. He's a good, dependable hitter, but. I think, you know, unlocking him and getting to him to hit more, especially in key runners in scoring position situations, is going to really boost this offense and starting to get them a couple wins and get back in this division. Some great points there, Mike and Rob, Nick, both of you also great. Just some great points on the Yankees. And uh, Andrew, uh, with another comment, says, great points. Need to see it over a way longer period of time. Sustain it. Could very well be false hope for all we know. Seen inconsistencies all too often most of the season. Yeah, we still have a second half of a season to play. Um, but I will say this, though, uh, considering where that rotation was um, for the Yankees and still is, I'm still a little surprised with all the hitters that Toronto has in that lineup and Oakland has in their lineup um, that the Yankees have now won five of their last six. So hopefully for the for the Yankees' sake, they can now carry that over against a um, an inferior, in my opinion, Kansas City team. That's a team at home that they should take advantage of. Um, the Royals are playing some decent baseball. They are better than I think most analysts projected them to be. Uh, but at the same time, this is a team that the Yankees should beat up on um, at home. And meanwhile, it's turned into a rout down at Amelie Arena in Tampa. It's now 3 nothing uh, in favor of the Lightning on a goal by Alex Kalorn. The shots on goal now favor Tampa Bay, 17-5. to um, Lightning playing with a big, big chip on their shoulder after uh, – falling on Saturday night at Nassau Coliseum 3-2. to two. So now they're up already 3 nothing um, on the Islanders in the first period and really setting the tone in that Game 5 and already ready to come back to Long Island for Game 6. Chase, Mar and try Chase, to Mar that, 
Yeah, and and and, and Semyon Varlamov has also been pulled. So uh, and uh, now Ilya Sorokin has been placed into the game. Uh, I mean, Rob, you've been uh, you've been checking out the game. You have it on the background. Can you give us a little bit more of an update of what you're seeing so far in in Game Five? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's on mute. Can't really attest to what is being analyzed. But from every time I look up, Tampa's in the Islander zone. It, it there's, that's a reason the shots are now eighteen to five. It, it's just an absolute route. This this is arguably the worst first period the Islanders have had all, all playoffs. This is not what they were looking for. And to be perfectly honest, their slow starts are finally starting to bite them because T- Tampa came ready and. Their, their foot's still on the gas. It's unbelievable. And there's about a minute left in the first period. The Islanders desperately need to keep this score where it is in this final minute, if not try to get one themselves. Well, we saw the Lightning in Game 4 come back to pull within 3-2, to two, so we'll see if perhaps the Islanders uh, have a comeback in their pocket um, down in Tampa. Uh, one more point to get to before the end of the night here, gentlemen, before we give our kudos. Uh, we usually have a sports update at 7-18 and 8-45, but because this sports update is pretty much intertwined in the same sport, um, I decided to make it for both of them. Um, at 8.45, and both have to do with the upcoming World Cup in Qatar in 2022. And I know I have three fellow football fans here with me, so I'm glad we can talk a little bit of soccer now that Joey's not here. So uh, <laughs> I'll put that down. <laughs> Nick's still somehow wearing that Arsenal Arsenal T-shirt proudly. I don't I, get I it. I can't but... hear him all the way down there. I say that. <laughs> <laughs> My team didn't finish in eighth place. I mean, I mean, I, I just want to know where, where where my Chelsea team stood in 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 response to Rob's Tottenham mm. and Knicks and Knicks Arsenal. But uh, mm. Mike, Mike, who's your EPL team? I've, I don't think I've ever asked you that. Question. Manchester United. Oh, okay. uh, we're, we're we're evenly split. big name clubs, and we're for all this panel, we might have to do a Premier League special. Oh, baby, that's don't don't put ideas in my head there, Nick. Um, <laughs> but the uh, twenty, but for our update, the twenty twenty two World Cups. Uh, Qualifier schedule has been announced, uh, but first that the uh, 2022 Qatar World Cup will only host vaccinated fans in attendance uh, next summer. That's been announced already uh, by uh, the con- by the hosting country of Qatar as well as FIFA. Um, and then, uh, as I had mentioned, that the World Cup qualifying schedule is out with the United States set to hit the road um, or travel to El Salvador for their first match on September 2nd before coming home for their first home match stateside against Canada. Uh, the two dates to certainly circle um, on your calendar are October 13th and November 12th. Those will be the first meetings, respectively, against uh, Costa Rica and Mexico. Um, so 14 games to look forward to in the Octagon, guys. Um, I'm going to selfishly uh, promote a, a little bit of a preview here of the U.S. men's national team, um, only because uh, just – what we saw four years ago um, with respect to the qualifiers and uh, how they missed the boat and uh, that Trinidad loss will still forever haunt my dreams. Um, Mike, I'm going to start with you here because I always see you and I'm, I'm also curious to get your prediction on who's going to win euros because I always (laughs) see you, see you posting from each match on Twitter. But first, I mean, we, we know that this roster has seen an entire overhaul for the U S men's national team. Pulisic is the only real pure returner coming back at forward uh, for this uh, club. So what is your outlook heading into the qualifiers for the United States? Well, the the U.S. men's national team should go in a little bit more like a juggernaut, I think, really. I I think they they really showed the 
they are young, but they they play with the sense of maturity. The 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 you know the way they are. They have a lot of players that yes, they're young, but they play in Europe for a lot of big clubs. You see Weston McKinney, you, you know, uh, winning a Coppa Italia in Juventus and a strong team playing with Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, you know, you have Christian Pulisic, obviously at Chelsea, just coming off of a Champions League win. So yes, they're young, but they have some. Re, you know, at where they're playing, some really high-level talent individuals, and they show that they can they can really play with the big boys. Not only talent, but phys- uh, physically, um, as they showed in the Nations League final against Mexico. So I think that you know, I think I don't want to say they'll roll through Concacaf some of the Concacaf teams, but because um, Concacaf is always tough. But I, I think it will be a little bit. Uh, it will be much different than you know what it was four years ago in that qualifying cycle where, you know, they struggled at first, they, they lost the first couple games, Jurgen Klinsmann is gone, and then you bring in Bruce Arena to try and salvage it, and then that doesn't work. I don't think that will be the, the case this time around. Um, you know, I think they have, um, you know, a nice run of uh, first, uh, you know, couple matches to start off with. They're not starting off with Mexico right away in their first couple games and qualifying, so... I think that will help them get a little bit of a cushion, um, you know, to go ahead from there. I think their first game is El Salvador, and not, mm-hmm. not a really great team uh, there, but, um, you know, that you should take advantage of. You know, with the guys that they'll bring down, and most I'm sure most of the guys will be from the Nations League, um, the, the team that was in that competition. So I, I think it'll be a team that in the, those first couple games, they'll win those games big. And really have a nice cushion to start out with their their World Cup qualifying cycle. Nick, your thoughts? Yeah, and Mike did a great job analyzing some of the young stars that the United States team has to offer for this qualifying uh, round of games. But again, I think the biggest thing that we have to look out for is the defensive units that uh, is going to be displayed there. We know John Brooks is going to be you know vital player in the center. Uh, but is he going to be playing with a guy like Matt Miazga, or are they going to figure out ways to maybe do a three in the back with a couple of wingbacks? There's a lot of different ways that they can approach this defense, but they're going to have to be the one area that um, the coaching staff is going to have to focus on to make sure that they are on the right track to get uh, into next year's World Cup. We know that they have plenty of tools on offense. We didn't mention guys like Gio Reyna, um, Tim Weah, um, the, the names are, you know, countless, and that's a great thing to to look forward to. Yeah, Sergio Dest, who's an excellent guy on the right side, who could play either the the right back or the right midfield position. There's a lot of different tools and uh, ways to go with this team, which is something that we've been dying to see uh, for a while, and hopefully that translates into the first couple of, of games of qualifying. September 2nd will be here before you know it. Rob, I'm going to give, want to give you a chance to add any uh, concluding arguments regarding the U.S. team. And also, I want to go around the horn, and I'll start with you here, Rob, as well. Who's your prediction coming out of the European Championship? Uh, well, yeah, to, well, I'll start with – I'll keep it brief on the U.S. team. The, the, Nick and Mike did a great job there analyzing it. I haven't really kept too big a tabs on them, but I, I know they're young, they're growing. And this is definitely going to be a lot different than we saw four years ago. This this team should not have any trouble qualifying. Then again, we said the same thing for 
four years four ago. Years ago. <laughs> and and that group somehow haunted us. So, but then again, but then again, Josie and Bradley and all those guys. Yeah, no, that, excuses that were. Was, yeah. That team was old. It's amazing how fast in the in the last three years they've aid, turned turned this team around into some young hot shots. Well, it's not only that the young; it's the player pool that has that really well. I mean, uh, pretty much the fact that your senior player now is, in fact, John Brooks. So mm-hmm. it's it's looking pretty good here for USA. I like I like their chances to qualify and hope because I, I I'm half Italian. I had you I had USA and Italy both miss that World Cup. That World <laughs> Cup was lifeless oh for me. It was awful. <laughs> and as for, as for, I mean, as for Euros right now, there's there really is no question the hot. There are two hot teams right now, and I, and I really hope that's the final. And it's Italy and Belgium because Belgium is a is a dangerous squad right now. They they're not getting enough credit, if you ask me. And Italy is the hottest team in Europe right now. They thirty game thirty unbeaten thirty match unbeaten streak. They have not lost in thirty matches. Now eleven straight games without giving up a goal. And they were per- and they were perfect in the group stage. They won the group with ease, went scoring seven goals, not giving up any, and they they cruised to a first place finish. And the round of sixteen awaits them, and we will see which opponent they get. And it should be a very exciting tournament. But I, I gotta stay loyal, gotta stay loyal. I'm gonna ride. I'm gonna ride the Italian train all the way to the finish. <laughs> Mike, are we throw are we throwing a little shade here at Spain or Germany, or uh, what's your prediction for Euros? Well, my prediction, I did do do a little bit of a bracket beforehand, um, before everything started. And I do have France winning. I will say I think Italy has to be considered a dark horse in what they are doing. I think they will wind up going to at least the quarterfinals or the semifinals of this competition. But I still have France, although they did look a little bit shaky. It did bring me a little bit of pride. I am half Hungarian, so... You know, seeing that 1-1 draw, that was, you know, a little bit of pride there and how great, uh, you know, they played in Budapest in that game. You know, historic draw that they got there and now even Hungary having a chance, God forbid, if everything falls their way, if Portugal drop points and they're somehow able to beat Germany, they could wind up second in that group of death. But um, I think France, um, you know, the balance that they have in that side, um, you know, they have so many weapons that they can hit you with, with Antoine Griezmann, Killian Mbappe, Paul Pogba in the midfield. They just have so many, Karim Benzema, who made his return to the national team. They just have so many weapons. They're such a balanced team on offense, defense, whatnot. They could sit in and hit you on the counter. They can dominate the ball in possession and, and, and find ways uh, to score from there. They can hit you from every which way. They're very... Uh, adaptable in their tactics or whatnot. Um, you know, I see them winning it all here. Nick, wrap it up for us. Yeah, so coming into the tournament, my pre-final prediction was England over Belgium. Uh, both of those teams uh, are well on their way into the knockout stages. They have played um, pretty good football coming into uh, their next matches. England will be playing, I believe, tomorrow uh, to round out their pool play. Uh, in my notes, I wrote down six teams that I would not be surprised winning at all. That includes Italy, Belgium, England, France, Germany, and the Netherlands. Netherlands 3-0 in their uh, pool play. They have great options with Memphis Depay and Wijnaldum in the middle. All six of those teams have a great shot of winning it all. I wouldn't be surprised if one of them brings it in. We'll see. It's uh, we're, we're, we're all not counting on uh, Joey Jarzinka's uh, 
polls out of Poland with Mr. with Robert Lewandowski. But uh, <laughs> but uh, we I appreciate all three of your predictions with respect to uh, to Euros and also um, your insight with regards to the U.S. men's national team. It should be a great finish um, to pool play in Euros uh, along you know, as we move on to the knockout stage and then on top of that, um, the start of the World Cup qualifiers in only a couple of short months, which really should be very exciting. I'm excited to see uh, where the U.S. is going to host their home matches. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun. I was actually there four years ago um, for the Costa Rica match at uh, at uh, Red Bull Arena, which to me was is still the best sports experience I've ever had in my life, just in terms of uh, the the roaring of the crowd. And uh, it, it was just nothing like it. So, um, gentlemen, we've, we've just about hit the end of our show here. We're just after nine o'clock. So we want to make want to make sure we pay our bills. But first, let's get to our kudos. And we'll start with Mr. Rob DeLuca. All right. And simple. Eli Manning, my man, my quarterback. You, He's back with the New York Giants. He's in a front office role. Completely expected. Could not be less surprised, and oh, and he we have found out his jersey retirement and Ring of Honor ceremony. It's going to be on September twenty sixth, one o'clock game. They're playing the Atlanta Falcons. I will be in attendance. I'm very excited to see that it, Eli Manning's been my quarterback because let's be real, he he started with the Giants when I was nine years old. So you know what it. And and he was my quarterback up until I was 24 years old. So as 15 years, and it's going to be great to see that ceremony. And good for you, Eli. Welcome back to New. Welcome back to Big Blue. I'm sorry you never got to see the days of Dave Brown and Kent Graham there, Rob. Nick, go, Nick, go ahead. Uh, this one's easy for me. Uh, my kudos goes to John Rom, winner of the U.S. Open uh, over the weekend at Torrey Pines. Uh, the comeback story. Um, this is a guy that was leading the Memorial a couple of weeks ago by four strokes and had to be sidelined because of COVID had to withdraw on the Sunday that he was supposedly going to, uh, take home the Memorial trophy, uh, comes back, uh, after his COVID protocol and comes in birdies the last two holes on Sunday and takes the U S open, uh, by a stroke. Incredible story. First Spaniard to ever win the U.S. golf tournament. So uh, as someone who has Spanish blood in him, very excited to see him take his first major. And I believe it's the first of many to come for me. Mike. Well, I'm going to stick with soccer on my kudos and, and give it to Denmark. And uh, kudos for their per performance today and just everything they were going, uh, they've been going through in the last week. Last week, they... They saw their teammate Christian Eriksen almost die on the pitch, um, you know, in that scary collapse that I don't think any of us will ever forget for a long time. Watching that, how scary that was, watching that moment, and um, you know that you would think that would uh, crush a team, really, you know, you know, shake them up, and understandably so after you know seeing that 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 you know hits you differently in, a, in an emotional way, but to be able to respond in the way that they have and being able to charge all the way uh, to second in the group and into the knockout rounds is just so impressive. And the, the impressive uh, second half, especially, that they had against Russia today, some of those goals, Andreas Christensen scoring a wonder of a goal from outside of the box on a crazy sequence. Um, they're just an absolute, you know, just hats off to them how they've been able to uh, respond and it's going to be you know as long as they are in this competition it's going to be an inspiring story to see how far that they can go and doing it all for Christian Eriksen it's just so inspiring and, and so good to see 
And so good to see that he's out of the hospital as well. Hundred percent. He, he was in such a bad spot. You know, they. You know, we've all heard the stories about he needed uh, CPR. That he was out there um, for a while. That he wasn't breathing. They needed to do CPR and, and revive him, and then obviously take him to the hospital. And you know, he had you know long stretches where we didn't know what was going on, and he had to do a lot of tests. To, you know, we heard the update, and now you know later in the week, finally. Um, released from the from the hospital, so obviously on that front, good to hear as well that he's home and and doing well. That's the more important thing than just the game. But it shows there are some things that are bigger than the game. It's not just you know about Denmark's inspiring performance. It's you know some of the acts uh, that you've seen from uh, opposition fans and the rest of the games and and uh, you know the fan bases and what they've shown and their support for Denmark and Christian Eriksen. It's just. You know, amazing to see on all fronts his recovery and and Denmark's inspiring play. Rob, Nick, Mike, Allwell said, my kudos goes to SNY on the return of uh, Gary uh, Thorne to the New York Mets booth. Uh, very excited uh, as someone who grew up watching the Mets and still does to this day, an avid diehard New York Mets fan. And uh, um, he, Gary Thorne was with the Baltimore Orioles for ten years in the play-by-play booth for MASN and. Uh, We'll be actually returning on a fill-in basis for Gary Cohen. I'm assuming Gary's going to be away. Uh, so one Gary in, another Gary, one Gary out, another Gary in. Um, just remembering those days of you know in the '90s and remembering uh, you know his call, um, you know of the uh, not just the Mike. Well, obviously everybody remembers Howie Rose's call uh, of the post 9/11 home run, but also uh, the home run that Piazza hit. Uh, when the Mets were down 11 to one, I believe it was against the Braves and came back to win uh, 12 to 11. And that's going back a long time now, but Robin Ventura um, too. yeah, yeah. The grand slam single as well. It's uh, you know, it's just great to have him back where he belongs. And uh, I'm hoping for him that we're going to see him on the NHL on ESPN real soon. Um, just, to, you know, I was actually, you know, just to, to, to let our viewers know and to let the three of you know, I was actually looking back on some old YouTube videos of Gary Thorne calling the Steve Eiserman goal and the Jason Arnott goal. And, uh, you know, just just too many good memories, you know, Raymond Bork, you know, all the all that all that all that great stuff that Gary Thorne provided. And, uh, you know, it was great that he had such a great successor in, in Doc Emmerich. And now with it going back to ESPN, I feel for you know, John Forslund, who thankfully got a job working with now the uh, the Seattle Kraken. But, uh, you know, I'm happy to hear with ESPN that Gary Thorne might have a job waiting for him back there. Um, we don't want to forget also, ladies and gentlemen, to pay our bills and let everyone know what's coming up here on the Eastern Observer. Be sure to start your mornings with the Daily Wrestling News Show with Minutes to Bell Times' Ryan Joy. That's every Monday through Thursday starting at 10 a.m. And then the aforementioned Ryan Joy joins Al Carl, Gary Mihefi, John DeConte, John Smith, and Tyler Adele each Tuesday for the big show, the Essential Wrestling Podcast presented by Pro Wrestling Pick'em, which will be this Tuesday, June 22nd at 6 p.m. And then a very special show coming up this upcoming Monday for the Primetime Rundown, as it will be our first ever, um, and, I, and quote me if I'm wrong here, Rob, I believe we've been together almost a year, and this will be our first ever in person, three of us together, live from Atlantic City, New Jersey, um, for a live primetime rundown. That'll be next Monday, June 28th at 7 p.m., which most likely will probably be coinciding 
with game one of the Stanley Cup final. What so could please... possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're really looking forward to that. And uh, it's going to be a great time. We hope you all tune in. You will not want to miss that. And be sure also to subscribe to us right here on the Primetime Rundown as we are available for download in the iOS and Google Play stores. You can also search us on YouTube at I-95 Sports Network. See all the programming that way or listen to us. We are also available on iHeartRadio and Spotify. Ladies and gentlemen, one more time for my special guests, Mike Zabo and Nick Diamandis, my co-host Rob DeLuca. I'm Ian Schreier, wishing everyone a pleasant evening, and we'll see you next time.